Uh-huh. I'm Dave Silva with Save with Conrad. Yeah, what's up, man? I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. Stephen, what made you come to Save with Conrad? To be honest, it was just listening to the podcast. Some, you know, a couple um, financial issues that I wanted to get out of, and you know, some credit card debt, and I had some medical debt, and I basically just sent an email, and next thing you know, I got a call probably an hour later. Was there anything? specific that Conrad mentioned on the podcast that kind of triggered you to make that call? Yeah, just consolidating debt. I mean, that was one of the things that I was really looking for was to kind of not have, you know, payments all over the place and, you know, have an interest really uh, put a damper on things. What was your favorite part about working with the team? Um, I'd have to say, I, I mean, probably how fast they responded to things. You know, I was refinancing, so, you know, I had some worries about a couple things and you know, he answered all my questions and just helped me feel feel more, um, I don't know, more confident about the process, you know. Now, how much money were we able to save you in this whole process? I mean, I look at at least, at least $50,000, at the very least. If you could, would you recommend this to a friend or a family member? I recommended it to my mom because she, she didn't believe that I was actually refinancing and, you know, was able to save that much money. That's tremendous. That's wonderful to hear. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. Mrs. B's doing well. Kids are doing well. Everybody's doing well. And, uh, we're recording this on a Saturday morning, and looks as I look out the window, the sun is up. It's starting to peek through a light cloud base, so uh, looks like it's going to be a great day. Well, one thing you can count on is 83 Weeks is not being canceled. Feels like everything else fun going on is canceled but we are going to be here to entertain you it is a small piece of uh your week but we appreciate you spending it with us and we hope that it's a worthwhile distraction from all the stresses and pressures of real life and today we've called an audible we were supposed to be talking about uncensored 95 one of the most interesting pay-per-views ever we've already talked about it a little bit i wanted to do a watch along but then i called an audible because i realized that today it's 316. 316. 
Wow. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear that 316? The glass break. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, I think of the Bible, but that's just me. But, But second only to the scripture. Austin 316. What a pivot point in in WWE's history. Well, what's interesting is you uh, you have quite the 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 sorted history with Mister Austin, and we're going to get into it today. Uh, Steve first came to WCW in May of 1991. That's worth mentioning. He was the PWI Rookie of the Year in 1990. When did you first meet Steve Austin? Uh, when I first started in WCW, I, th- I think Steve must have started just a few months in WCW. Uh, if he was there in May of 91, I don't think I came in until July uh, of 91, maybe June. So, um, yeah, the first time I met Steve is uh, backstage, or not even backstage. It was in the WCW post-production facility, which is in the lower, or at least was, in the lower level of the CNN Center, right next to... A great Chinese restaurant. Ric Flair could attest to it. I can't remember the name of it. And just two doors down from the infamous Jocks and Jills, where the brain trust of WCW would meet usually two or three times a day, once in the middle of the afternoon and maybe once at uh, closing time. And then they, a few of the hardcore WCW people, creative and otherwise, would uh, hang out at Jocks and Jills later on in the evening. But yeah. It was uh, downstairs in a production post-production facility at CNN headquarters where I first crossed cross paths with one Stone Cold Steve Austin. Of course, then he wasn't Stone Cold. He was stunning, stunning. Steve. What were your initial impressions of Steve? Uh, you, you know, we, uh, <clears throat> my initial impressions of Steve, you know, Steve was kind of a, a cut-up, you know, back then. He, he was... Uh, Always joking around, uh, you know, laughed a lot. Um, he wasn't as intense as he obviously later on became. You know, when I say intense, you know, a lot of that just comes with the pressure of being, you know, on top. And and, and all the stress that goes along in the politics and all the other nonsense that goes along with that. But, you know, back then, you know, 91, Steve was, you know, he was one of the boys. But he, he was different than most because... He, like I said, he was always cutting up. He he was very lighthearted, at least when I saw him, you know, when he showed up at the post-production facility. And keep in mind back then, you know, when I talk about the CNN post-production facility, you know, we had our, our uh, a studio back there where we, where we would do a lot of, believe it or not, you know, this is still 1991, early 90s, we would do a lot of what were referred to as market edit promos because syndication – you know, we had in WCW, let me backtrack a little bit, kind of set the stage for that period of time. And WCW had obviously, you know, the Saturday night show on TBS, the Sunday night main event show also on TBS. Uh, but we also had uh, two, sh- two primary shows that were syndicated shows, WCW Pro and I think it was WCW main event syndicated. Those were shows that were a combination of um, original matches that were produced specifically for those syndicated shows, uh, as well as some recaps and some packages from the TBS shows. Keep in mind, in syndication, there was a certain uh, uh, there was a limit as to how much content within an hour could be repackaged content from syndication. So we had to have the right balance of original matches and content specifically for those 
two syndicated shows in addition to some recaps and packages that we saw on either Saturday or Sunday, usually from Saturday night because that was what was driving most of WCW's business at that time. So we would do the market edit promos where, for example, if we, you know, obviously we had, uh, I say obviously, but we had a local station, non-cable station, but a local market television station that would carry WCW Pro. Well, we would cut, you know, 30-second or 60-second promos, if you will, uh, talking about, you know, when WCW is coming to Chicago next. That was the reason, a lot of the reason why we did those shows is because it gave us penetration into the market where we could promote our live events. Well, each one of those markets had to have three, four, five, you know, specific uh, edit market promos in each of those shows. So on any given, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever day, you know, we would schedule for those promos. Um, you'd be in that post-production facility from nine o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night. And the room, the green room, if you will, it was actually gray, but they called it the green room. Um, dark gray really was a dark room, but it was the size of, of probably, uh, I don't know, like if you go to like a four star hotel and order us, you know, and, and, and get a suite, you know, how the bathrooms are really big and, you know, you could throw a small party in there. And the green room or gray room in WCW post-production was about the size of two and a half large hotel bathrooms. It was really small. And then you pack, you know, 20, 15, 20, 25 talent in there for 12 hours. You had to find a way to entertain yourself, <laughs> you know? So there was a lot of joking and laughing and, and people just trying to, you know, bide their time back there while we're there, they were waiting to do their promos. And Steve was, you know, he was, I don't want to say he was the life of the party, but, um, yeah, probably in a way he was, you know, he kept, he kept everything kind of light and, and fun. And I, I liked him, you know, he was my first impression of Steve. God, that was your question. And I went all the way around the block. My first impression, you know, we had a little, I, I won't say uncommon, but chemistry-wise we did. Steve was a, you know, he loved the outdoors, he loved to hunt, he loved to fish, pretty down-to-earth, you know, straight-talking guy. And that's kind of, you know, what I grew up with. So, um, you know, we, we hit it off pretty good. You know, I was still new. I was scared, to, not scared to death, but I was brand new. I was that guy from, you know, Minnesota and nobody could really figure out why I was there. And I was, you know, as is my, my tendency, uh, I was, I was, I don't know. I don't, how, how do I describe this? I wasn't walking on eggshells, but I was, you know, I was going with the flow. I didn't want to come on too strong. I was really just trying to learn and trying to assess, you know, different people's personalities and the new process I was involved with and all of that. So, uh, but Steve and I didn't get close. We didn't talk a lot about hunting and fishing and all that kind of crap, but um, we just kind of got along, you know, in a, in a superficial kind of way, I guess. I think the story goes that Austin gets the call to join WCW for Magnum TA. What would Magnum's role have been with the company in this era? Magnum, God, I love that guy too. He's still one of the, he's a great guy. Just great. And his, his son, I think is going to be a, a star of the future. Um, just write that down someday. You'll look back and go, wow, Bischoff said that 10 years ago. It's amazing. Um, Magnum's role. Magnum was really close with dusty. He was one of dusty's 
confidants. You know, there were a handful of them. You know, Magnum, I think, was at the Magnum was a guy that I think Dusty probably trusted the most. And when I say trusted, I don't mean in a, you know, you know, political way or, you know, anything nefarious about it in terms of the context of what I just said, but trusted his opinion, trusted Magnum's judgment, um, trusted his confidence. He knew that he could have conversations with Magnum that wouldn't leave the room, which was rare at that time in WCW. Uh, and, and Magnum was, is a, a smart, smart guy who really understands talent in the business. And I think Dusty relied on Magnum a lot to, to help guide the process and guide some of Dusty's decisions, probably more so than anybody. Uh, I, I would say even more so than Mike Graham, who he was close to. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. We, uh, we see that Steve is going to you know come into the company. And I think the story goes that when he visits WCW for the first time at the corporate offices, he's offered a contract of like $75,000 a year. At this point, you're not anywhere involved in the decision making. You're still a quote unquote C squad announcer. Yeah, that's it. I mean, Jim Jim Hurt was was the guy making uh, making those calls and, and calling those shots and approving the deals. I don't think Jim Hurt was out actively recruiting talent. I don't think Jim Hurt knew good talent from bad talent, but that necessarily wasn't his job either. That's what he had Dusty for and guys like Magnum and Grizz and uh, who's Jake the Snake's dad, by the way. Um, and a couple other people around that Dusty, you know, trusted, as we just discussed with Magnum. Um, but that was the Jim Hurd era, uh, certainly not the Eric Bischoff era, because like I said, I had just gotten hired probably 60 or 90 days after Austin did. So when he first comes in and debuts, he's put with Vivacious Veronica as his valet, and she is uh, the wrestler Rex King's ex-girlfriend. And then a few weeks later, they make a pivot. And Austin is paired with his real life wife, Jenny, who's going to come in as Lady Blossom. There's no explanation or anything given on TV. They just swap them out. And uh, she actually wrote in her book that Dusty named her that because she was, quote, blossoming out of her top. Uh, any memories of Lady Blossom when she came in? Just her blossoming out of her top. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, she, 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 she had a huge set of knockers. I ain't no doubt about it. I hate to say it that way. Don't mean to be crude and crass, but it's early in the morning. I haven't had enough caffeine yet. And that's the only way I can uh, describe it. She was definitely blossoming, 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 blossoming out of her top. God damn it. Shit. These are what? the screams I used to make when I would cut myself shaving before I knew about manscaped. You scared Thank me, you, brother. Manscaped for turning my loud shrieks into multiple peaks. I got to tell you, man, I've had fun with manscaped as a sponsor and who doesn't have a ball cutting accident in their rearview mirror. Right, Eric. Let me tell you, I've been very careful throughout my life to avoid any kind of a ball cutting incident. <laughs> And, and one of the reasons, and I'm not going to go into graphic detail here because not everybody wants to hear about this type of thing. And I have to respect that. So I'm not going to go into a long belabored explanation about one of my worst, most painful, frightening experiences, but it had to do with my zipper Mm. and, and, and me being in a hurry to take care of business. And ever since, and that happened to me when I was about 19. And 
ever since that time, I mean, it was, I mean, I almost had to call, you know, nine one one. It was that bad. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to get unzipped. If you know what I mean? Uh, once I got my, my junk caught in the zipper and it, it, I was, you know, I was in a restroom for about 15 minutes trying to manage this. And it's, you know, you start to panic after about five, at least I did. It's like, holy shit, this is serious. I can't undo this. I can't get out of this thing. It's like having your dick caught in a fox trap. It was horrible. And ever since that time, I've taken very special care, you know, when I'm taking care of business to be, uh, to be Nick free, cut free and manscape makes it easy. They even got a little freaking light, like a headlight <laughs> on the electric trimmer. Yeah. So you can take care of your shit in the dark, like in a spur of the moment, things start happening. All of a sudden you didn't anticipate it. You don't want to turn the lights on and, you know, get all clinical about your shit, but you can grab your little buzzer if you need a trim and there's a fucking headlight on it. It's awesome. It is like one a of the Porsche. Car- it's like a Porsche Carrera. Of course, you're talking about the brand new Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. This is their third generation trimmer. It's still got the great advanced skin safe technology to keep your bad boys nice and smooth. Start taking notes, boys and girls here. Manscaped accidents are finally a thing of the past because their engineering team has spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. Of course, it's the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. You can get a battery on this thing that'll last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. And if that won't get the job done, you should probably consult a doctor. But one of the coolest features is the LED light you were just talking about. It's going to illuminate those grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. And don't forget about the new charging stand. Now you can show your mower off loud and proud. So if you got some... Yeah, because you want to invite the neighborhood over and put it on this in the center of the table and say, "Look what I got." Hang on now, Eric. Here's the thing: you've been out of the dating game for a little while, but when you invite a, a new lady over to the house for the first time, if when she has to excuse herself and use the little girls' room, and she sees this trimmer there, she's gonna know, "Hey, this might be worth checking out." A lot of people- no, and that's that's a really good point. I never thought of it that way because you know there's that you know there's that first time experience when you you know you don't know this is the first time you've been uh, navigating that territory with with a, a a new acquaintance, and at least then if that were to happen and a young lady were to show up at your home and you have to use your restroom before the getting got good, she at least knows you take care of yourself, clean down there. Yeah, I, I know this Aero, is- aerodynamic, if you will. And I know this is working for our listeners because Silva tells me that some of our listeners have started DMing, uh, pictures to our show account at 83 weeks. Please don't send us those pictures. We're going to take your word for it, but you need to try this out for yourself. Get 20% off plus free shipping. When you use the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com, your balls will thank you. That's right. Get 20% off and free shipping. When you use the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com, that's 20% off. With free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use the promo code 83 weeks. Your partner, your dick, and your balls will thank you. Uh, let's keep it moving here on uh, Steve Austin. I guess, you know, a lot of our listeners just know Steve Austin from his WWF run. And I mean, because everybody who, who was watching wrestling, even if you weren't watching wrestling, you knew about Steve Austin in that era. But what you're talking about here when he first joins WCW, this is a very different looking human being. You know, he's got the long blonde hair. He's even going to rock a ponytail. He's got multicolored bicycle shorts and white boots. He even wears a robe to the ring. 
it's a totally different presentation than the stone cold character. And the work is, is a lot different too. In WCW, he was more of a quote unquote bumping heel. He's going to fly around and, and just be a bouncy ball for you and have long technical matches. And that's a lot different than the hard nosed brawler, you know, kick ass, take names, take no prisoners presentation. We would see years later. Uh, and he's also rocking the name stunning, stunning Steve Austin. what did you think of the presentation then and how it evolved over time? It's really interesting. You know, one of the things I like about, you know, going back and doing these watch alongs or even the shows in general, when I have to do research is watching certain characters, obviously Stone Cold Steve Austin being one of them, watching the evolution of their characters, their ring style, how they had to adapt to injuries and other issues. And I think what we saw, the evolution of, of Stone Cold Steve Austin and what he eventually became. Um, as probably one of the most iconic superstars in the last 25 or 30 years, uh, was n- not necessarily the, the the result of design or intention as it was um, he had to accommodate certain injuries, you know, and he was a bumping machine, amazing athlete, you know, and I, and I didn't really appreciate or realize, you know, Steve's background as much uh, back then as I learned later on. But, you know, hell of an athlete, tough guy, and he loved bumping around. He he was that bump machine. But, you know, it takes its toll. Knees, shoulders, all kinds of things start going bad. And eventually Steve had to, you know, work around those injuries. And if you watch him, you know, probably at the peak of his career, I think Steve may have probably better than anybody else in recent history, been able to work around those injuries and grow his character. You know, a lot of times, you know, significant knee injuries that, and neck injuries and others that Steve had, even beginning in WCW, you know, once you're not able to do what you became known for, in Steve's case, early WCW was being that bump machine, you know, that bump and heel, which everybody loves. Every baby face wants to be in a ring with a bump and heel because they make you look good, brother. And, you know, once Steve lost that ability to be that bump machine, he was smart enough and talented enough to to develop his character around those limitations. And they see the value in that right away in WCW. Steve says on his first night in, they tell him they're going to put the television title on him. And at the time, the champ was Bobby Eaton, who's famous for being a uh, tag team wrestler with the Midnight Express. But here he's even had some single success. He challenged Ric Flair for the world title in a two out of three falls match at a clash of the champions. And he defeated Arn Anderson to win the TV title. So this is great news for Steve. He has his first match on May 13th, 1991 picks up a win over Chuck Coates. And just a couple of weeks later on June 3rd, it happens. Austin beats Bobby Eaton to win the TV title, man. Talk about the immediate push. They saw big things for Steve right away for, for them to have him under contract for like two weeks and then immediately make him a champ. Right. Uh, evidently, you know, and again, that would be dusty Rhodes. Dusty saw a lot in Steve. I think there was a, you know, there was just a, a, a chemistry in, in addition to Steve's talent. I'm not suggesting that, you know, dusty only pushed Steve because of the, you know, he, he liked him. Um, dusty obviously recognized Steve's talent, but in addition to that, I think much like I discussed when I first met Steve, there was a, you know, kind of a back home familiarity, I guess, because he was from Texas and Dusty loved Texas as much as he did. And, um, there was just a good chemistry there. And I can imagine, I never talked to Dusty about it, but I can only imagine that, that Dusty saw a ton of potential in Steve Austin. 
Uh, the very next day he has his first title defense against flying Brian Pillman. How funny is that? Considering they're going to wind up being tag team partners. That was his first defense. Wow. That's interesting. And again, you know, put, put yourself as you would say in the Wayback machine and, you know, imagine having the opportunity to, to book a young, fresh, relatively uh, green Steve Austin studying Steve Austin with a guy who can, you know, the, the bump machine as we've been talking about in Steve Austin with a guy who you know was so athletic in Brian Pillman, uh, and such an exciting talent to watch. That would, that would have been an exciting match to book for the very first time. Be a lot of anticipation for that match. He's going to start defending the belt against Tommy Rich, Tommy angel, even Keith Hart, who is the, of course, the brother of Owen and Brent Hart, who are obviously going to be a big deal in Austin's future. He's even going to have defenses against Sam Houston. Of course, a lot of rematches with Bobby Eaton. And some of those even go to time limit draws. Uh, but then the big match, the first big match of his TV run happens at the great American bash on July 14th. And this is the one where famously flair has now flown the coop and we have to announce a, a new champ. So it's going to be Barry Windham versus Lex Luger to determine who the new world champion will be. Austin's not in that conversation yet. Instead. He's teaming with Terry Taylor to take on PN news and big Josh in a scaffold match. And Austin has admitted this is the worst match of his career. And uh, it even won worst match of the year in 1991. Famously PN news just wanted to lay down and wanted nothing to do with this fucking scaffold. Can you, I mean, can you blame him? No. Think about that. This was my, I don't mean to cut you off brother, but this was, I'm pretty sure my first WCW pay-per-view I had never seen anything like this, you know, Vern wasn't, you know, in the AWA, he wasn't, you know, he would have cage matches and, you know, Thanksgiving, he had a Turkey at a pole match, but that was more humor and just throwing out something fun for the holidays. But, you know, Vern's idea of a gimmick match was a bloodbath cage match. So, you know, coming into WCW, I see they're having a, a fucking scaffold match. I mean, guys are going to work up there. I'm sitting down on the, I'm sit, standing down on the ring floor looking up at it. And then to think, you know, you've got a 350 plus pound PN news that's being asked to go up there and work. Now, you know, you're bigger than I am. You know, I'm not, I'm not anywhere near the size of PN news, but I can tell you what, my 220 pound fat ass wouldn't be crawling up and trying to work a match on a scaffold. I can't imagine being as big as PN news and being asked to do it. Yeah. It's one of the worst matches ever go out of your way to watch it. If you want to see just really a, a negative star match uh, through the rest of July of 91, he's uh, successfully defending his title against big Josh, Bobby Eaton, Johnny B bad, yellow dog, even Mike Graham. Uh, in August, he keeps that trend going, working a lot with Bobby Eaton, usually to a time limit, but they, they started to do something fun. And later in the month, they do a, a deal where the television title is only on the line for the first 10 minutes. So the match can continue, but if Eaton wins after the 10 minute mark, he does not become the champion. And now course, that's just weird. Well, is I mean, that, is I, that, I mean, come on, let's, let's break this down a little bit. Is that not help me out here. Help me understand the psychology behind something like that. Perhaps the, it was a t 10 minute time limit, uh, because it, that was your TV time limit. So if it goes longer than what a TV match would be allotted, then that title cannot be on the line. So 
10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. No title can change hands. But the match continues. Why am I interested in that? No, I agree from that point on. Perhaps it shouldn't be. But it does give a way to, or you find a way to get creative. Keep the belt on Austin, but give Eaton a couple of wins and, and maybe keep the interest in the rematches. It's, it's a, a weird concept and one you don't see anymore. Uh, but and there, maybe there's a reason for it. But again, let's break this down. So ten nine eight seven six five four three two one. Man, no title changes. Now, if if Austin is the babyface, which I'm assuming he was here, or no, was he a heel? A, Do you he's remember? A he's a heel. He, he was a heel. Well, that, that makes even. And, and Austin had the title at the time, or not? Yes. So Austin had the title. He's a heel. He he gets through the first ten minutes probably in some cowardly heel cheating, dastardly fucked up kind of way. He's able to hold on to the title. So what I guess from a storytelling point of view or psychology point of view is once that time limit goes, somehow Bobby Eaton makes his comeback and we establish to the audience that if it just, if Bobby Eaton would have just had another 45 seconds, depending on how the finish of that match broke down. Now, if, that, if, if for example, Bobby Eaton was on top and it looked like he was going to, you know, win the match up until the last few seconds until time went out because Steve, you know, cheated in some way, shape, or form, or stalled. And then the next 10 minutes of the match, Bobby Eaton was kicking a dog shit out of Steve Austin. That I can understand, because now you're communicating to the audience that if it just wasn't for that last 30 seconds, Bobby Eaton would have retained the title or won the title. That I kind of get. I get it. I can see it in my head. It's one of those things I think that looks really good on paper, and then when you execute it, the audience just can't follow along with the psychology as well as the bookers did or the writers did who kind of laid it out on paper. Sorry, off on a tangent. How about this for a weird matchup on that Great American Bash Tour that year? I think it's August 12th. It's Steve Austin and the Diamond Stud, who we know is, uh, uh, of course, going to be Scott Hall. And the hardliners, Dick Murdoch and Dick Slater. And they're going to lose to the team of Big Josh, Bobby Eaton, Dustin Rhodes, and the Z-Man. That That is not the main event, but dude, that's some big-time talent in that match. Big-time talent. Big-time talent. And if, I, I, I don't remember it. You know, I, I don't remember that match. Again, first day on the job, really. A lot going on. Trying to keep my head down. Trying not to fuck anything up. Um, so a lot of this I don't really remember. But... Um, and I was in the back cutting promos anyway, but can you imagine? I, mean, I would like to go back and just watch that match. It would be fun to watch. Let's, uh, young, du- young Dustin Rose, probably a rookie at the time, close to it. Yeah, so much young talent that emerged, and in, in Dustin's case, you know, still with us today in, in AEW performing in the ring. August twenty fifth at the Omni in Atlanta, Austin's involved in a tournament to crown a new United States champion. And Austin would defeat Barry Windham by DQ in the quarterfinals. And then Z-Man uh, takes the loss uh, from Austin. And then in the finals, he uh, he has a match with Sting. This is a pretty big deal. You know, you, you are the TV champion. You've made it all the way to the finals uh, of the United States Championship Tournament. And you're in there with Sting. Of course, Sting wins. But man, this is a guy who debuted in May and by August... He's working with Sting for the U.S. title, and he is the TV champ. That's a big freaking deal, man. Big freaking deal. And obviously, Dusty Rhodes, you know, saw a lot of potential and put the proverbial rocket ship on his ass and doing his best to send him to the moon right away. 
Clash of the Champions 16 is Fall Brawl. It goes down on September 5th, 1991. Austin successfully defends the belt against Z-Man. Later in the show, he's in a battle royal, which is eventually won by Elegante. Then in September, Austin would start working with Dustin Rhodes for the TV title. And this, I think, is a little-known fact. I think they were both born in the same hospital. And I think uh, Austin's mom and Dusty even went to high school together. Get out of town. Talk about is, that a, is that a fact? I think so, yeah. How, where did where did that information come from? I'm not questioning it. I'm just curious who knew who knew that. I think it's been talked about in Austin's book. That's awesome. I love that kind of stuff. You know, and obviously we didn't reveal it here first. If Austin revealed it in his book, but that kind of uh, detail and trivia I find uh, fascinating. I love learning things that I didn't know before. It's fun too to think about. You know. Not only did their parents know each other, but now they're working with each other here. Very young in their career, both getting tremendous pushes in WCW at the time, but really they're going to go on to much greater success as Goldust and stone cold, Steve Austin, just total character pivots for both guys. Yeah. And I, you know, I had an opportunity. I was in LA uh, several years ago when podcasts first became a thing. And I think Steve's podcast was one of the first, at least one of the first really big ones. Um, and I was in LA and, you know, every time I, and, and still do usually, um, uh, when I get to LA, I'll reach out to Steve, send him a text, let him know I'm in town. And, you know, about half the time we'll get together and have a beer or whatever. And, uh, Steve knew I was in LA and he said, Hey, you want to come on over to my house and do a podcast? I thought, sure. What, what, what the hell? I was, you know, brewing and distributing my Buffalo Bill Cody beer at the time. And, you know, one of the things that ultimately Steve and I bonded over later on in our careers, uh, was, you know. The enjoyment that we both uh, have when we're sharing a beer after a show at night. And he got together. He wanted to sample my beer and talk about beer and talk about wrestling. And one of the things that we talked about uh, on the podcast uh, was the the evolution of his character and how it really came to be and how it was really created. And uh, it was so fascinating. It was just so fascinating to sit back and, you know, over the – actually, we did – probably five hours with a podcast. You know, the first one went for about two and a half, three hours. And as soon as it was done, he called me, I left his house and about 20 minutes later, he called me, said, brother, you got to come back. We got to do one more of these. So went back the next day and did another one. It was really a blast, but the hearing from Steve, you know, not somebody else discussing it, not Eric Bischoff giving his perspective or, you know, anybody else, Bruce Pritchard, anybody else, but it was really fun listening to Steve talk about how his character evolved and what were the things that really triggered the 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 inspiration for Stone Cold Steve Austin versus the Ringmaster, which is what Vince McMahon wanted him to be when he came to the WWF from ECW, or you know Stone Cold or Stunning, or excuse me, not Stone Cold, but Stunning Steve Austin, or any of the other previous incarnations of Steve Austin. Uh, hearing it from Steve was a blast, and if you're listening to this, you can go back and find you know the archives. It's it was a fun fun show for me to do, and I'm sure people would find it interesting. Well, here's something interesting on October 10th, 1991, the fabulous Freebirds would defeat Steve Austin and Tony Mella fast forward five years. And Michael Hayes, one of those Freebirds, would be interviewing Steve Austin at the King of the ring. That's when Austin would first reveal Austin 316, and his career was forever changed. Nobody could have predicted this just five years prior here on October 10th and 11th, Dustin Rhodes and big Josh would defeat a couple of WWF world champions to be named Steve Austin and Oz. 
It's hard to imagine Steve Austin teaming with the gimmicked up Kevin Nash as Oz. That is a, I'm, I'm going to be careful how, what I say and how I say it, but dusty, what the <laughs> fuck were you thinking? Come on. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty fun because, uh, I think the question that Kevin Nash had at the time was Oz is a geographic location. It's not. Uh, or geographical locate, whatever the phrasing he used was, but it's a place. It's not a person, but it, it was here. Um, let's keep it going here. We would see on November 5th, Austin team up with Arn Anderson for the first time, and they would beat Bobby Eaton and Dustin Rhodes. And then he would continue to defend the TV title through November against Brian Pillman and Dustin Rhodes. Christmas day through the 28th. He's doing a series of time limit draws with the future big Papa pump. Scott Steiner here, man, if you could have, and I do think that's maybe one of the missed opportunities when Scott Steiner was sort of the, the top guy in WCW towards the end of WCW's dying days. Imagine what business that could have done with stone cold, Steve Austin. If you know, it could have been put together. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those, what if scenarios that, you know, could have, would have never really happened for a lot of reasons, but yeah. Can you imagine that? That's an, that's great, great fantasy booking right there. December 29th, 1991 is the lethal lottery tournament for Starcade. Austin and Rick Rude are going to wind up as a team. And this uh, lethal lottery concept is a drawing of just random tag teams. who's going to face each other. And then the winner of the matches will then advance to a battle Royal later in the night. Well, Austin and Rick Rude advance when they beat big Josh and Van Hammer. Ultimately the battle uh, or the lethal lottery battle Royal was won by sting. And then to finish up the year on December 30th, Austin is going to wrestle Scott Steiner to a time limit draw. You got to think, man, pretty big, uh, debut year here from may through the end of the year for Steve Austin and, and WCW 1991. Wouldn't you agree? No, I would agree. And, you know, just as you've kind of run down, you know, that year in 91 and some of the matchups and the pairings as well, you know, just close your eyes for a second and imagine, you know, young Steve Austin, healthy, Steve Austin, fresh Steve Austin, you know, tagging with Rick root, who is, I think one of the most underrated superstars, you know, uh, of his era. Uh, Rick was a great performer in the ring. And obviously so was Austin. That's a great combination. You look at how dusty kept, you know, Dustin Rhodes in that mix and guys like Barry Windham and Bobby Eaton, as we discovered, these were all, you know, people that could make Steve look even better than he already was and also benefited, you know, from Steve as young Dustin Rhodes. Yeah, Dustin Rhodes was pretty young at that time. He needed that rub as well and that credibility, a better way to say it. So that was, you know, uh, I don't get the old Oz Steve Austin thing, Dusty. Sorry about that. Got to have some fun with it. But if you look at the rest of the matches that, that Dusty had in mind and and not only the matches but the pairings uh, for Steve Clearly, Dusty was really trying to push Steve to the moon. Well, we're trying to push something to the moon right now. Of course, we're talking about Boost Mobile because they give you everything you could want in a wireless carrier. So you know exactly what you're getting and exactly what you're paying for. With no annual service contract, Boost Mobile offers a range of unlimited data plans and the latest phones from top brands, all at affordable prices. Service plans already include taxes and fees, plus mobile hotspot, unlimited music streaming, and more. And here's the deal. Smartphones are expensive. Don't force the family to wrestle over one phone. Step up with boost mobile 
and get four free Samsung Galaxy A20 phones when you switch. That's right. By switching to Boost Mobile today, you'll get four lines for just $25 per line per month with unlimited data. You'll also get four free Samsung A20 phones, perfect for the whole family. And of course, a super reliable, super fast nationwide network to keep you connected. So what are you waiting for? Switch to Boost Mobile and step up with Boost Mobile and switch today. This is a limited time offer while supplies last. New customer only requires port and activation from eligible carrier. One free device per line. Users using more than 35 gigabytes of data during a billing cycle may be deprioritized during times of network congestion. Offer and coverage not available everywhere. See boostmobile.com or retailer for full details. And uh, we thank Boost Mobile for sponsoring the podcast and always giving you more than you expect. And Austin was getting more than he expected in January of 92. So after a very successful 1991, the very next month, the dangerous Alliance is formed. Probably one of the most underrated and least talked about factions in wrestling history. Check this lineup out. You've got Rick rude, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Larry Zbysko and Steve Austin. Of course, it's managed by Paulie dangerously. And we've also got Medusa. I think most people would say Medusa was probably the best female wrestler in America in this era. Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton are considered to be two of the best, if not the best tag team wrestlers of all time. Larry Zabisco, a former AWA world champion and the guy who took Bruno out. Rick Rude, fresh off running on top, challenging for the world title in the WWF with uh, Ultimate Warrior. And a young upstart with a huge upside named Steve Austin. All managed by Paul E. Are you kidding? What a group this is. You know, and it, oh, I mean, really think about it just for a moment. And the, out of that entire group, there were only two people that were not good on the mic. And I don't mean this as a criticism. They were Bobby Eaton. I don't think there was anybody at, at, at this in 1991, 92, the era that we're talking about here. Technically speaking, other than maybe Arn. And okay. Other than maybe Arn, I don't think there was anybody technically as good as Bobby Eaton. Now there were bigger stars. Obviously Ric Flair was a bigger star. Sting was a bigger star. There were other people that were bigger stars, but that had a lot more to do with their character and their ability to work a mic and all the other things that go into being a star, some tangible things, some intangible Bobby didn't have the ability to grab a hold of Mike and mesmerize an audience. That just wasn't his thing, but man, could he work? Everybody wanted to work with, with Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton could make anybody look good and he worked hard. I mean, there's so many great things about Bobby Eaton, but his mic skills wasn't one of those things. Medusa wasn't great on the mic. She was great in the ring. She you know, visually, she was stunning. She was athletic. She could kick your head off if you needed her to. You know, she could do things that other women during that era just hadn't even thought about trying to become capable of doing. But out of that entire group, there were only two people that couldn't blow you away with a mic. You know, Larry Zabisco. You know, sometimes underrated, sometimes maligned, whatever underappreciated on a mic. Larry's a could go. 
I mean, he would, he, Larry, people don't really understand just how talented Larry was. Now, Larry sometimes got in his own way later on in his career, like a lot of guys. And this is just my perspective. And I was pretty good friends with Larry for a long time. Still am, but, you know, closer to him back then. You know, Larry was transitioning from being that guy that put Bruno San Martino, you know, out of, out of, uh, out of the industry and, you know, wrestling at Shea Stadium or whatever it is, you know, he bragged about all the time and did, by the way, it wasn't just bragging and, and bullshit. It was the truth. Larry was a huge star at, at, at one point, but by the time Larry got to WCW and the era that we're talking about in here, 92, 93, that part of his life was beginning to slip away. You know, as far as being the guy, and he was more of a supporting cast member than a star. But Larry could go. He understood psychology. He was compelling on the mic. Some of the most fun interviews I ever did in AWA uh, were with Larry, and they were great interviews. Larry was great. So you had Larry, you had Rude, who could cut a hell of a promo. You had this entire raw, entire team, with the exception of Medusa and Bobby, who could probably talk better than 90% of the people on the roster. And now let's stack the deck a little bit more and put Paulie dangerously, then Paul Heyman on top of the, or maybe he was Paulie dangerously at the time, put him on top of the, you know, the Sunday, you know, as a cherry on top. That's a, that's a hell of a promo. <laughs> I mean, anytime that they came up as a group to cut a promo, that had to be some entertaining shit. Uh, without question, one of the best factions of all time. And, we often talk about this in some of my other podcasts. You wonder had the horseman not existed and this was sort of the first faction like that, would we be talking about them that same way? But maybe it's just, uh, WCW at the time was in a state of flux. Maybe they had issues or heat with Paul E for whatever reason, the dangerous Alliance doesn't last very long. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little later, but this is a, a great band of, uh, of heels here who can essentially be the backbone of WCW. Let's get into uh, what they were doing in the action. Uh, Clash of the Champions goes down on January 21st. Steve Austin and Rick Rude are going to be a tag team against Sting and Ricky Steamboat. Wow. That's a big deal, man. A lot of talent in that ring. Damn. I want to go back and watch that. And they're continue uh, sort of tearing it up. And they're even doing a lot of cage matches on house shows. Stuff where it would be Sting and Dustin Rhodes and Ricky Steamboat and Ron Simmons on one side. Versus the Dangerous Alliance on the other, which is Austin, Rude, Eaton, and Anderson. I mean, big time, a lot of talent. I think WCW in the 91, 92 era, as they're trying to sort of find their way without Ric Flair, uh, the result was some really, really good matches that I don't think, with a lot of great talent, that I don't think maybe people pay enough attention to. There was an era in here where Bill Watts comes in and he decides to have WCW Saturday night and with all their main events become two out of three falls matches. And one of those that we would see is on March 25th, where it's Austin working with Z man for the TV title, two out of three falls. And that trend continues. And we would see Steve Austin do these with uh, Barry Windham and, and a lot of other guys. What did you think out of the two out of three falls concept being a staple on WCW Saturday night, you know, I've criticized Bill Watts, um, over the years, uh, and, and I think justifiably. So Bill Watts did a lot of stupid shit. Um, and really if anybody put WCW in a position where they were literally reach, they meaning executives in Turner broadcasting were reaching for the plug to pull it. 
Um, Bill Watts was that guy. And it wasn't Jim Hurd. It wasn't Kip Fry. It wasn't any of the other previous, you know, WCW management or bookers. It was Bill Watts. That being said, um, this was a decision that I personally, for as a fan, not as a television person, not as a business person, it purely as a wrestling fan, I liked I like the two out of three fall matches because to me, and and I probably didn't even analyze it as much back then as I tend to do now, but I guess to me, it allowed a better story in a match, you know, putting two guys out there and giving them five minutes or seven minutes or 10 minutes for, for television time, you know, and trying to tell a story during that window is really tough. You know, you're going out there and you're getting reactions from the crowd and you're trying to tell a story, but really getting the, re- the crowd to respond is probably your biggest, uh, goal when you're out there for five, seven, 10 minutes. And oftentimes you're, you're out there trying to achieve that goal at the expense of good storytelling or good psychology. Whereas a two out of three fall match kind of opens up, you know, the landscape a lot and you can start really telling a much better story. Now that's me as a fan. To this day, I would l- I like two out of three fall matches for that very reason when they're done well, but it, not necessarily good television. You know, even now we're talking about early '90s here. Even by the early '90s, people had started becoming, especially people that were watching a lot of WWF at the time, were becoming accustomed to to much shorter, um, more. Um, Oh, how do I want to say, you know, more colorful, more exciting television matches at the lack of psychology or with the lack of psychology and story. So the audience was just, it was hard to maintain an audience, you know, for that two out of three fall format and the ratings tanked as a result of that. Um, but I liked it as a fan. I liked it. And sometimes that happens today. There's a lot of things that, you know, as fans, we would like to see. And make a lot of sense to us as fans, but that don't necessarily translate to the other 99% of the wrestling audience who watch on television, who just want to be entertained and, and like watching the high spots and the action and the athleticism. And I think therein lies a lot of the conflict that, you know, we people, when people talk about what they like and what they don't like, whether it's an online chat or, or, or whatever, um, you know, the, the business has changed. It's evolved. You know, we've, we recondition the audience every couple of years. You know, it's a TV cycle of its own where the, the product has to change to accommodate television, just like the NFL did and NBA has and a lot of other sports has. Um, the product changes to accommodate television because television is what supports the business. But as a result of those changes, we start to miss some of the things that we used to love. And I think really great story within the body of matches and psychology is one of them that you rarely see today. You know, you see psychology behind a spot in a way, but in terms of a story in a match, even a really good story within, you know, a program leading to a big event like WrestleMania is really lacking today compared to what it was you know, back in the seventies and the eighties and even into the nineties. But a lot of that I think is not the result of bookers who just don't get it. Or I should say writers, not bookers, but writers and producers who quote unquote, don't get it. Um, it's not that 
it's that you have to accommodate the the platform and the platform just does isn't conducive to long form storytelling and matches or even like in an arc leading up to a big pay-per-view like WrestleMania you know you get some beats along the way but not as compelling as it used to be sorry another tangent hey since you brought it up WrestleMania Lots of debate. A lot of people assumed with everything being canceled and closing down, uh, because of the hysteria surrounding the coronavirus, that they were going to cancel WrestleMania, uh, this past week. Of course, we did not get such an announcement. What do you think? Do you think we wind up seeing WrestleMania in Tampa as scheduled? You know, I think anybody that predicts anything at this point is kidding themselves. I mean, I don't know. I, I have no inside information, you know, but I, I can tell you, and I was watching this pretty closely. In fact, I, you know, texted you towards the end of the week when the big, you know, meeting was taking place in Tampa. I was pretty sure Tampa was going to pull the plug. Yeah. And, and in fact, if I was a betting man, which I'm not. But had I been a betting man, I would have bet just about everything I owned that they would have pulled the plug and, you know, the ramifications of that move would have been pretty torrid, I think, for for WWE. But um, it didn't happen. And I was actually I, I was I was streaming, you know, the local WFLA news in Tampa because they had promised to post a, a press conference following that meeting. So I was literally following it live as it was happening. And here, here's my take. It doesn't mean, and this is just my this is my perspective. You know, way off on the sidelines. I know nothing. I have no inside information from anybody. That being said, I think that I'm guessing, only guessing, that WWE probably has insurance in place that in 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 case of an act of God, something of force majeure. As, as it is defined in a, in a contract, um, if something were to happen that prevented, you know, WrestleMania from taking place that was out of WWE's control, um, I'm guessing that that event is insured, and, and which means that w, WWE would probably still end up cashing in on a massive insurance uh, coverage. And that's business, if, the, if it's true, if I'm right. That would be good business. And Vince McMahon is a smart guy, but he surrounded himself with a, with a lot of really, really smart people on the executive side of WWE. So I would, I have to imagine that that's that's the case. What sucks so obviously, let me finish if you don't mind. So I understand why WWE at this moment, because there's some people that are criticizing them for not as they right. do the right thing. Doing the right thing is doing the right thing for their shareholders too. You know, and I know that, you know, Stephanie came out and said, you know, the well-being of the, the fans and obviously the, the talent and the people in WWE is a primary concern. And I believe that, by the way. But there's also some business to be taken care of here, right? And we're talking about probably hundreds of millions of dollars in in revenue potentially lost if WrestleMania hits the skids. I don't know. I don't have the numbers. I'm pulling shit out of the air, but I'm guessing it's it's big, right? So WWE has to protect themselves from a business point of view. Um but what I found most interesting is the, the officials in Tampa who decided not to pull the plug. Now, ask yourself why. Why would a group of politicians, local politicians, not do what everybody else is doing around the country and say, no, we're not doing it. We're going to pull the plug. Why wouldn't they do that? What's your guess, Conrad? I'll give you mine in a minute. My um, guess is they uh... – well, it's about money as always. 
Well, it's about power in politics. So if you're a, if you're on a Tampa City Council or whatever the group was that was making that final decision as to whether or not to pull the plug, if if you all raise your hands and vote to pull the plug, and you're a local Tampa politician, and all of the businesses in and around Tampa are gonna be pissed, right? They're gonna be pissed at you. Mr. City Councilman or Miss City Councilwoman, they're going to be pissed at you because you voted to pull the plug and deprive them, even though it's justified. I'm not saying it's not justified, but you're raising your hand. You are the one that's you're shooting the horse. You're 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 the one pulling the trigger here. <laughs> your stock in the local community as a politician is going to hit the fucking tank. That's why. Nobody wants to be responsible for making a decision that's going to have hundreds of millions of dollars of impact on the local economy. You know, WWE, obviously, it's a big deal and it's a big decision. So I understand the stalemate. It's like, okay, who's going to jump first? Who's going to be forced to to pull the plug? And I think that's where we are today. Now, I, I also believe that... Uh, I don't know, no facts, no conversations with anybody in WWE. And I only say that because I, th I, I think sometimes people assume that I still have conversations because I have friends that are still working there. I want to make it clear. I make a point not to call people that I'm friends with and, and have conversations about the business because I don't want anybody to ever be in a position where there's, you know, uh, they're possibly being uh, scrutinized for leaking or talking about things about business that they really didn't. Right. So I keep my distance. Um, that being said, uh, I, I believe that internally there is probably some hope justifiable probably less and less every day, every hour that this thing will become contained within the next couple of weeks, or at least managed to the point where there's not the hysteria and overreaction that we're seeing today. I think that as each hour goes by, that becomes less and less of a possibility because clearly, you know, our, our culture, our politicians, uh, everybody is, you know, kind of erring you know, on the side of caution as they probably should, but I don't blame WWE for pumping the brakes. You know, they've got three weeks and I understand the local politicians not wanting to be the ones that have to raise their hands and say, okay, let's shoot the horse. Cause that's going to cost the local community hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's probably going to affect their political careers down the line. Well, I feel bad for the independent guys, you know, WrestleCon put out a video this past week, the owner of uh, WrestleCon and high spots is Michael Bacchicchio. And he explained what the ramifications were. Um, I mean, he's going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars on this deal. And you think about, you know, and obviously he's a big player, but you think about all the independent talent and all the independent promoters who this was their one weekend a year to really make hay. And now it's seemingly gone and that's income that they won't be able to replace. And I don't know, me and you should brainstorm. We should, you know, people, I, I, Look, I, over the last five years or so, um, I've had the opportunity to go and be a part of a lot of these local independent shows. And I remember, I, you know, I, I, one of the first ones I went to, and I think it was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
because I was hesitant, you know, you know, I had been off the shelf for a long time and the idea of showing up at, you know, independent shows just seemed a little bit square peg around hole to me. And I resisted it for a long time, but I got a call from a guy and I apologize for not being able to remember his name. Super guy reached out to me. Uh, Lori and I were here in Wyoming and he reached out and said, Hey, or excuse me, we're in Arizona. We were in Arizona. And he reached out to me and says, Hey, we're having this independent show in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we'd really love to have you there. And I, I like, Albu- I love New Mexico, Albuquerque. He's eh, a little sketchy, but there's a lot of beautiful, you know, things in and around New Mexico. And I thought, you know, this Fuck, it's only a couple-hour drive from Phoenix, you know, five or six-hour drive, whatever it was. I'm just going to throw my dog in the truck and go do this independent show just for the fun of it. In fact, they reached out to me like on a Thursday. They couldn't even advertise me. They reached out to me on a Thursday for a Saturday night show. I got up Friday morning, drove myself from Phoenix to Albuquerque with my dog. And, oh yeah, I was a little bit hesitant, I guess. I just felt out of place at an indie show. And I got backstage And it reminded me so much of why I really loved the wrestling business in the very first place. You know, coming off of WCW, all of the good, all of the bad, it was really, really big, right? It was different. Motivation was different. Challenges were different. Everything was different. And I got to this indie show and I saw just the passion and the enjoyment that everybody was experiencing. And it reminded me so much of why I really like the business. It reminded me of my early days in AWA when I was so naive and, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on and nothing about, you know, how bad Vince or Vern's business was at the time because I was just a fan. I wasn't analyzing the business and talking to people about it. I just knew what I, you know, grew up watching and loving and enjoying. And I'd go to these, you know, AWA shows because they were small and, and, it, and things were pretty informal But, man, after going to that independent show in Albuquerque, it changed the way I felt about indie shows. And I started doing more and more and more of them. And I think what, you know, I guess concerns me or what I understand today that I probably wouldn't have understood if had I not been going to these indie shows for the last five years, it's just how passionate, how dedicated, and how important these shows are to the people that perform in them and the people that promote them. You know, a lot of these young talents are, their dreams, their hopes, their goals are at the the, the most nascent stage. You know, they're, they're wide-eyed, they're excited, and they're so passionate about it. And to have to take that away from them, especially at a time when the whole indie scene is really beginning to explode, Right. It has a lot over the last five years, four or five years in particular. And to now un- have to unplug that. And so many, you know, like you know, Brian Pillman Jr., I was in Qatar with him uh, a couple weeks ago. You know, young, I, I just love watching Brian, you know, because he's at that stage in his life where, you know, he's not there yet. He's not ready for prime time yet, but he's getting closer and closer and closer, you know, every year. Every time I see him, I see something more out of him. And now a lot of that talent who depends on those independent bookings uh, to pay their bills and feed their families and, you know, barely scrape by. Because let's face it, you know, with the exception of a small handful of independent wrestlers, the vast majority of them are probably barely – they're probably losing money chasing that dream. And now they're really going to lose money. And I feel bad for them. I really do. We should put our heads together. 
I agree. And you know, one of the things that we're talking about when it comes to money these days is how it's unfair that some of these big box retailers have different prices for professional mechanics versus just do it yourselfers. What I want is a family owned business like rockauto.com, who's been serving auto parts customers online for like 20 years. You can go to rockauto.com right now to shop for all your auto and body parts that you would ever need. And you're going to get to choose from hundreds of manufacturers and they've got everything you could ever need. I really mean that from engine control modules to brake parts, the tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. And whether you're looking for something for your classic car or just your daily driver, you can get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered very directly to your door. Very, very fast. This is a unique catalog. It's remarkably easy to navigate at rockauto.com so much that even my dad can do it. And you can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, the specs, and the prices that you prefer. But my favorite part about rockauto.com is the prices are always reliably low and the same for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. They don't sort of gouge you the way airlines do, where it's just whatever the market can bear. You get the great price every single time. You should never spend twice as much for the same stuff. So do yourself a favor. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. And when you find what you're looking for and they have a little box there that says, how'd you hear about us? Please write in 83 weeks. So they know that we sent you, uh, but I've done this for my daily driver, especially anytime I throw Dave Silva, the keys, I know I've got to go to rockauto.com as soon as he gets back to the office. Uh, and I did this a few years ago when I got my dad, his dream car, an old classic car. And it turns out those old classic cars need some things. Well, rockauto.com had everything we need. You'll see an amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. It's rockauto.com. And let's talk about what's next for Steve Austin here. This is kind of a fun little footnote. On May 9th, I think, is the first time Austin and Cactus Jack teamed up in WCW to get a win over Junkyard Dog and Ron Simmons. Of course, later in life, as Dude Love and Mankind and Mick Foley, him and Austin are going to be all tangled up. The next day, they're at the Omni. And he's teaming with uh, Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson to take on Dustin Rhodes, Barry Windham, and the Great Muda. This is such a loaded roster, dude. Let's talk about a week later at Wrestle War at War Games. Maybe one of the most favorited War Games ever. It's Sting Squadron, which is Sting, Nikita Koloff, um, Ricky Steamboat, Barry Windham, and Dustin Rhodes taking on the Dangerous Alliance. So you've got Rick Rude, Larry Zbysko, Bobby Eaton, Arn Anderson, Steve Austin. This is an underrated roster here, man, that I don't think gets its due. It doesn't, you know, and timing is everything. We talked about, you know, WCW in the 90s. Keep in mind that Ted Turner, and I may get my dates a little bit off here. I don't have my research in front of me, but Ted Turner bought the NWA out of bankruptcy in probably 88 um, reformed it into WCW and rebranded it, I should say, as WCW uh, in 89. And it took a while, you know, for the audience to really get with that transition. You know, can you imagine, you know, if WWE all of a sudden, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, dropping the F, but if all of a sudden, you know, WWE, you know, was sold to another company, completely rebranded with new talents and new management and all of that. It would take a couple of years to get your audience back. It just would. In any case, in a WCW's case, they were buying you know, the NWA, which was the reason it was in bankruptcy was because it was broken and, and losing audience and losing money. Um, 
and then to try to rebuild that. I think the reason that a lot of that talent that we're talking about right now is so underrated and underappreciated is because they just didn't get the exposure. You know, they didn't have the platform, the successful platform that they needed for the audience to, you know, across the country to really appreciate that talent. Because, again, WCW in the early 90s, fuck, going into the mid-90s, was still, for the most part, regional television. It, you know, TBS was a, you know, yes, they were a superstation. Yes, you could get it around the country. But, it, uh, you know, it was the Andy Mayberry, you know, Atlanta Braves network is what it was. And that wasn't, you know, it wasn't a national uh, powerhouse the way it is today. Things have changed. It was still very much regional television, strong in the Southeast. But, you know, the rest of the country really didn't pay close attention to WCW at the time. And I think that's one of the reasons that some of the talent that we're talking about is underappreciated or, or underrated. Not because of their lack of talent, but because of the lack or lack of exposure at that time to the national television audience. About a week later on worldwide, Austin would defeat Barry Windham to win his second television title. Let's fast forward to clash of the champions. 19 Austin and rude are going to beat Z man and Bagwell about a, uh, a few days later, a beach blast. Ole Anderson will be the ref. And we've got Nikita Koloff, Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes. Taking on the six man team of Austin, Eaton, and Arn. Uh, so much talent, so underrated. The hits keep coming. July 12th at the Great American Bash. It's a NWA tag title tournament. And in the quarterfinals, we see Wyndham and Rhodes beat Austin and Rude. And around this time, the Dangerous Alliance and Larry Zabisco part ways. Austin is going to successfully defend the TV title against Larry Zabisco on July 14th. Fast forward to September and we see Steamboat defeat Stone Cold Steve Austin, or in this era, stunning Steve Austin for the television title. And this clash of the champions 20 here is notable because it's the last television appearance of Andre, the giant, a big moment for WCW to have Andre, the giant there and, uh, Steve Austin dropping the belt to Ricky Steamboat. Uh, no shame in losing to one of the all time greats like Ricky, huh? No, you know, I, didn't talk to Steve about it at that time and haven't talked to him about it subsequently. So I'm, I'm guessing here, uh, I'm guessing Steve had absolutely no problem with that. You know, Steve wasn't a political animal that I could see. Uh, and again, during this time, neither was I, I wasn't involved in management. So, um, I wasn't exposed to a lot of the, you know, the, the executive boardroom politics that were so prevalent. Uh, I knew they were going on, but I stayed away from it all. Um, but just knowing Steve, the way I know him now and knew him a little bit, then uh, I doubt that Steve had any issue at all with that. What, what a great matchup. Amazing talent, at amazing this, talent at this point, by the way, um, Steve is going to be the longest reigning television champion in WCW history. This is also the last time he would hold that bell. And Austin has gone on record as saying, it was one of his favorite titles that he ever won. I think he may have his old title, uh, that he held. I think, uh, he stumbled across it years ago and picked it up. And uh, how did he stumble across it? Do you have any insight into that? Uh, yeah, I do. Actually, there was a, a, a band that was doing, uh, uh, music videos for WCW and they had a couple of belts on loan from WCW that WCW never used anymore to use for a music video. And I think one day, uh, a member of that band was chopping it up with Steve and 
he happened to mention, Hey man, I think I've got your old TV belt. And Austin said, Oh man, that was one of my favorite belts. And the guy said, Oh, well, here you go. I don't, that's I, awesome. He should have it. That's awesome. There are good people in this world. That's an, now I, most people would have said, great. I, you know, 10 grand it's yours. <laughs> knowing, no, knowing that Steve has a lot of money. I, I'm not saying that it's horrible, but for a guy to go, you know what? You, you should have this and give it to him. That's, that's awesome. That's cool I like deal. that. It's a good story. He gets a world title shot on September 19th against Ron Simmons. Of course, he doesn't get his hand raised there. Um, let's keep it going. I guess we should mention in October. I think it is the dangerous Alliance is disbanded when Heyman is fired from WCW. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about this in the past. It is one of those sore spots. Everybody always wants to avoid or sort of gloss over. Do you remember, uh, Heyman being shown the door and, and the impact it was going to have on business? I, I, yes. I mean, I remember it because there was, you know, it was a colorful situation and some of the, some of the details, you know, had leaked out or rumors, I guess about the details had leaked out. I don't know. I don't know what was true. Again, I wasn't in, in management at the time. I wasn't involved in, you know, any of the deliberations and accusations and all that kind of shit. I was trying to stay away from it all. Um, but I was aware of it and, and knew that it was going down. I didn't really at that time, again, I I tried to stay away from the politics of shit. I I wasn't involved in the business. So when it happened, I I kind of, from my perspective, I looked at it. Okay. okay, How is this going to change the television product? You know, what, what are we, what are we really losing here? And again, Paul was great at that time. Certainly not what he's become now, but again, you know, the, the dangerous Alliance, there was no, as we talked about a few minutes ago, um, there was no shortage of talent there on the mic. It wasn't like, Oh my God, Paul Heyman's leaving. Holy shit. We're going to have to disband this whole thing. Cause nobody else can cut a promo. That wasn't the case. So from my perspective, at least not being involved in the process, not knowing the details you know, behind the scenes, to me, it wasn't no disrespect to Paul, but it, it, from my perspective, from my perspective, it didn't seem like it was that big a deal, that big of a loss again, because there was so much talent within that group. You know, Paul's, Paul's contribution to that group, you know, was his brand because Paul had already been a brand by that point, but 80% of his contribution was really his ability to run the mic. And I didn't see his departure as having that significant of an impact on that, on that group of people. It's interesting to see how everything sort of changes for Austin, but in a hurry, um, it won't be long before we've got something new brewing, but let's talk about Halloween havoc 1992. I think it's the first and only time two guys in wrestling ever teamed up and they had the exact same name. Uh, Steve Williams is going to, uh, <laughs> Steve Williams is going to tag with Steve Williams here. So Dr. Death is going to team with Steve Austin to take on Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes for the world tag team title. Of course it goes to a draw. This was not, of course, the original scheduled match. Austin wasn't even supposed to be on the card. And he wrote in his book that at the time he's living in Georgia, just about to open his garage. So he can go dirt biking. When he gets a phone call from Bill Watts saying they're in Philadelphia and you have to come right now because Terry Gordy didn't show up and we need Austin to come in here and team with Dr. Death. Uh, so Austin says, okay, I'll head to the airport. So Terry Gordy's a no show 
And now we've got Steve Williams teaming with a guy who wanted to be Steve Williams, but couldn't be because there was already Steve Williams in wrestling. So he became Steve Austin. And now two guys with the same name are attacked. Now, is it now? Is that the, is that the story? Steve Williams, who we know now as Stone Cold Steve Austin originally wanted to wrestle under his own name. Is yeah, that true? The story I've been told is that was his plan. It's just, well, I'll just be Steve Williams. And someone said, well, we've already got a Steve Williams. You can't be a Steve Williams. There's already one of those. Uh, so Steve Austin was born. And do you know, cause I don't, and I'm, I'm really, I'm asking this not as a, to set you up as a, as an authority, but do, do you know where the Austin came from? Was that Steve's idea? Was that dusty Rhodes' idea? Uh, I mean, where'd that idea I where, believe, where did I, it come from? I believe it was a booker. It may have been Dutch Mantel. Uh, and I think they liked the idea of the Steve Austin from the $6 million man. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. So either way, interesting way to uh, wrap up, uh, your year in 1992, I guess on the way out, we should mention there's a series of interesting matches. Uh, Christmas is maybe not his favorite show though. Eric Watts would pick up a win over Steve Austin. The next day, Austin gets the win though. So I guess that's good. The following day, the 27th, Masahiro Chono beats Steve Austin on the 30th sting beats Steve Austin. Uh, but things take a turn in early January in a major way. The Hollywood blondes are formed. Now Austin would go on record as saying that he was of the impression he's going to get a singles push and there's a pivot. Uh, I think Austin wrote in his book that he was told by dusty. He's going to be put with Harley race as his manager and become the United States champion. And not long after dusty tells him this, they're at TV in Columbus, Georgia for a TV taping. And, uh, Brian, uh, Brian Pillman comes up and says, Hey, we got to come up with a finishing move. And Austin says, what are you talking about? And he says, well, we're a tag team now. And so he goes and confronts dusty about it. And in Steve's book, he wrote that dusty said, yeah, baby, we changed our mind. We're going to make you and Brian a tag team. Just trust me, baby. This team has legs. And when they first get started, they're wearing different colored trunks. And then Brian says, man, if we're going to be a tag team, we got to have a name. Every good tag team has a cool name and some matching outfits and things like that. They're traveling at the time with Raven. And they're all bouncing ideas around. And eventually they come up with the name Hollywood blinds. And I think Steve credits Raven for coming up with the name. And that of course was a famous wrestling tag team in the 1970s, Jerry Brown and buddy Roberts. Of course, one half of that's going to go on to be uh, one of the fabulous Freebirds. And Austin sits down, orders some new ring attire. And, uh, they wind up getting this new look where it's the, the three stars and Brian has some jackets made and. Uh, it's kind of a cool little look and eventually they even, uh, do the gold chain deal. Brian would buy Steve a gold chain and you would see it on WWF TV for years and years. And I think Steve says it's one of the most sentimental things he owns because he feels like wherever he goes, Brian is with him and it's a cool little happy accident because this tag team was not exactly his original plan, but they did some great shit together and it wound up being a lot of fun. Yeah, I had the opportunity to kind of watch Brian and Steve, you know, backstage and not so much watching them in the ring, which was always fun to watch. Don't get me wrong, but it was also fun watching them together backstage. They really enjoyed working together. The chemistry was great. Again, you know, similar personalities, you know, different interests, I'm sure, but similar personalities in that Brian, for the most part, now he could, you know, from time to time, Brian was, you know, capable of being kind of moody 
Um, but it goes with the territory. But for the most part, you know, when you see these two guys together, they were cutting up, they were having a blast. You could tell the chemistry was there. It wasn't, they weren't tolerating each other. They weren't tolerating each other. They truly enjoyed hanging out with each other, you know, and work, not only working together, but hanging out, you know, driving up down the road and that type of thing. It was great, great chemistry with amazing talent, which is why it stood out as much as it did. They're going to be paired with somebody at Clash of the Champions 22 that's going to be a long-time opponent for them. It's Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas. Uh, Finally, the Hollywood Blondes are getting a title shot here. Uh, Finally. They haven't been together very long, but everybody knew right away, hey, these guys are going to be near the top of the heap. Uh, Douglas and Steamboat retained by DQ. At Super Brawl, the Blondes get a win over Eric Watts and Buff Bagwell. Fast forward to early March and the blondes would defeat steamboat and Douglas to win those world tag titles. And uh, I think Austin has said there were really no plans for them when they were put together, uh, but they got over and then here they win the, uh, the world titles or the championships. Uh, they continue to wrestle throughout the rest of March in a bunch of classic matches with Douglas and steamboat. A lot of these even go into time limit draws. Some of these going beyond 30 minutes. Um, Really, really interesting stuff on worldwide on April 6th. You guys tried something that was a little hokey. The computers contenders challenge, a computer would supposedly put a bunch of info and stats in to determine who the number one contenders to the tag title should be. And it determines that Scorpio and Bagwell are the number one contenders and they wrestle the blinds to a draw this night. Whose idea was the computer contenders challenge. That feels like a dusty roads idea. Yep. Yep. Yep, sir. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, again, it's so easy. And I, I'm guilty of this. You know, I'm, I'll, I'll take the first kick in the balls for this. Um, it's so easy to go back and, and I don't want to say make fun of, but you know, find humor in some of the decisions and choices that were made creatively back in the early nineties. But it, it, again, context is King, you know, dusty, dusty had a lot of, Criticism. I mean, Dave Meltzer used to bury Dusty Rhodes. You know, the dusty finish, I think, probably emerged from, you know, dirt sheets and, you know, that type of thing. Dusty took a lot of heat for some of his creative, and some of it was pretty far out there. But, you know, Dusty was a visionary. You know, Dusty would try things. Dusty would, he wasn't afraid of, of, of trying new ideas. And, you know, the computer, you know, we laugh at it now, but, you know, back then it probably felt pretty cutting edge and WCW was struggling to do something, anything to kind of catch up to the WWF at that time, because, you know, it was still uh, people, again, they forget this and all their criticism and all their bullshit, you know, about you know, the history of WCW, WCW was a new company. You know, that was taken out of bankruptcy. It already had baggage. It wasn't a startup. It wasn't like AEW who came out of the shoot hot. WCW came out of the shoot dragging probably seven or eight years of bad decisions along with it. And it had to, to be rebranded. It was digging itself out of a hole. And I think at times, and again, I wasn't a part of these creative decisions at that time or even management in, in, during most of this time that we're discussing or all of it at this point. But, you know, when you're in that hole and you've, it's like you're in quicksand, you know, you, you either 
you know, fight to get out of it and find a way out of it, or you keep sinking deeper and deeper. And sometimes you fight so hard that it actually accelerates, <laughs> you know, the fact that you're sinking because you're, you're trying, you're taking risks. You're not doing safe things. You're not doing things that other people have done because you know, they've worked in the past. You're trying some new shit. And that happens with people like Dusty was. And I, Dusty was inspirational to me because he he was a visionary and he was fearless and he would take the criticism. He would he wasn't afraid of it. And he would try new shit. And some of it worked and some of it didn't. But the fact is he was trying. And I think, you know, this is an example, the computer matchup thing we were just talking about is an example of Dusty having a vision, trying to do trying a new idea. Who knows? Sometimes you try things hoping that they'll work. And every once in a while, you catch lightning in the bottle. Sometimes you don't. And then you get blasted for it. But uh, I wouldn't be critical of, of this creative decision at all, no matter who made it. Let's talk about Slambury 93. The Blondes would defeat Dos Hombres in a cage match to retain the tag titles. Pillman actually works the match with a broken nose. And uh, a few weeks prior to this, on TV, they show a mass team from Mexico, go to a draw with the blondes. And then the next week they defeat the blondes. And then after the match on the interview, steamboat unmasked to reveal it's him. And he says the other one is Douglas, but Douglas doesn't unmask. Uh, it's actually Tom Zink. Douglas had told WCW. He couldn't make this date. He was not going to be there, but they kept advertising. So the solution was let's just throw Tom Zink under there instead. Mm. Um, Let's also talk about Ric Flair's talk show at the time. Flair's coming back into the company, but he can't re- he can't wrestle yet. I think it's part of his agreement with the WWF separation. Uh, so they're going to come up with this new Flair for the Gold concept. And during the interview, the blondes appear and start to uh, poke fun at Rick and Arn's age. They're going to call Arn a statue and tell Rick to settle down before he blows out his pacemaker. It's of course it's a setup for them, uh, but they're calling it a Flair for the old in a parody. The next time we see him, it's Pillman dressing up in a wig and he's walking with a cane and interviewing Austin. And they also have a maid and uh, it's Pate who was imitating Fifi, the French maid. Arn eventually comes out and punches Austin. And then they get in the ring and they're fighting until, uh, he hits Arn with a cane, which brings flair out who chases the blondes away. And Austin says this was great stuff because everything they did was ad libbed. But it did get legit heat with the office because it turned them babyface because it was sort of over with the crowd. And I do think it's fun that they're referencing Arn being old here. Arn's 33 fucking years old. Um, what do you remember? My, my, my how things have changed. I, I, I know. What, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. What do I remember of this whole situation? First of all, flair for the gold was a dusty. That was a dusty idea from beginning to middle to end. That was all dusty roads. And, and I, and I know that because I would, I, by this point, you know, dusty and I's relationship had, um, evolved and developed quite a bit and dusty would, you know, he'd riff with me, you know, I'd go to his office sometimes on, you know, between, um, when I had holes in my schedule during the day when I was down in the production studio and if there was like three or four hours where, you know, we were waiting for talent or other people were doing things and I had to, you know, sit around and wait for my turn to get back out in front of the camera again, I'd go up and hang out with Dusty and, and Magnum TA and Grizz was another guy that I would I, I used to love talking to. Uh, but Dusty would kind of open up a little bit and start 
talking to me about ideas that he had. And so I, I, I was there to hear at least Dusty's vision for Flair for the Gold. And again, you know, pretty controversial at the time. You know, talk show segment, you know, big segment. You know, relatively speaking, it was it was a pretty big production for WCW at the time because it required a lot of staging and walkthroughs and and all that instead of just you know match interview match interview kind of format, which was for the most part what WCW was doing at the time. But it was it was a really cool idea, and you know going back and you know as you recap the incident with with you know Flair for the old. Isn't it ironic? Flash forward now, uh, whatever, 1997, when the NWO was making fun of Arn and his age and Ric Flair and, you know, kind of the same tone and tenor, right? I yeah. mean, you can, you can see the parallel. So it's, it, it's really interesting, but yeah, calling, you know, Arnie Anderson old when he was 33 years old, God, how times you're barely ready for prime time. when you're 33 years old in today's environment, let's, uh, let's talk about Clash of the Champions 23. Rick and Arn are going to pick up a win over the Blondes by DQ in a two out of three falls match. Um, and then fast forward a few days later on Saturday night, it's singles action for one of the horsemen, Paul Roma and Steve Austin. And Roma actually pins Austin. That's real life. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> who did who, Steve must have pissed somebody off that week. Uh, oh my God. Who knows? Beach Blast 93. The Blondes are going to be working with Anderson and Roma. The Blondes do pick up the win, which is good. Uh, I think this is in the era where we should mention Missy Hyatt, who has been a, a staple in wrestling for a while at this point. She has always been led to believe that she was supposed to manage the Hollywood Blondes, that that was perhaps the original idea. But instead, she's put with the Nasty Boys. Did you ever hear that M- Missy Hyatt may have been a potential manager for the Hollywood Blondes? No, I never heard that. But I, you know, look. First of all, Missy doesn't have a ton of credibility with me, at least. So, the fact that she has come out and made that statement, eh, I would take that with a grain of salt. I'm not sure I would be eager to believe that. Number one. Uh, but the idea of Missy with with the Nasty Boys, now I think that's funny. I think that's good booking. That's good casting. Let's put it that way. It's great casting. What what did the Hollywood Blondes need Missy Hyatt for? Are you kidding me? I it doesn't even make sense on the surface of it. But who knows? Maybe maybe Mike Graham <laughs> in a weak moment, or you know, to Terry Taylor or somebody, you know put that in her ear for whatever reason, who would know, um, who knows, but I, I don't think it was true. Well, I got an idea. Maybe what we could do is me and you could go over to paintyourlife.com and we could have a photo of the Hollywood blondes done and we could send it to Missy. We know it would be an original painting by world-class artists, all done by hand from a photo. And I know what you're thinking, Eric, that probably sounds expensive, but it's really much more affordable than you ever thought possible. And it is maybe the ultimate gift because it's personal. It's meaningful. It can be cherished forever. And if you're looking for a truly meaningful gift, you've got to try paintyourlife.com. And, and, and this is something that I've done many times. We've talked about it on the show in my dining room right now. There's a photo of Megan and I that was done by hand by an artist. And it was uh, snapped in Chicago on, uh, on an iPhone. Uploaded straight to paintyourlife.com. We picked the artists we liked, and it's a home run. So much so that 
We got my mom, one of these for Christmas for her puppy that she absolutely loves. We got Rick and Wendy one, uh, for Christmas of their wedding day, just a really, really special piece that you can't replace anywhere else. Go check it out at paintyourlife.com. It's a true painting done by hand by a world-class artist, all created from your favorite photo. It's great for birthdays or anniversaries or Valentine's days or graduations or, you know, mother's day, father's day, whatever. And it's really simple. You choose the artist you want to work with and you work with them through the entire process until every detail is perfect. And by the way, there's no risk. How about this? If you don't love the final painting, you just get your money back. It's great for decor. It's a work of art. And with paint your life, you get your favorite memories transformed into a work of art that you can cherish forever. I can't stress how special of a gift this is for someone you love or yourself. And right now for a limited time offer, you can get 30% off your painting. That's right. 30% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text Eric to 64,000. That's Eric to 64,000 text E R I C to 64,000. That's Eric to 64,000 paintyourlife.com is legit. Are they not? They're legit. And you know, uh, Lori and I also have a, a portrait that paintyourlife.com did for us. Same thing, man. Same experience. We s- uploaded the photo. Uh, it was a picture that uh, Lori and I took together in Bozeman, or excuse me, Livingston, Montana, when we were on a, our annual anniversary Harley trip. And we were sitting down by a riverside. It was a beautiful day. We were just waiting for dinner. So it was early evening. Sunlight was perfect. Same thing. Had somebody, you know, take a picture of us on an iPhone just so we had it. And when we got the opportunity to have paintyourlife.com as a sponsor, they asked for, you know, a picture we wanted done. So I, I'm not thinking about it too much. Sent it off. Like a week later, they they sent us the f- first stage, you know, an outline or you know, the beginning of the painting. And I'm like, holy crap, that is amazing. And a short time after that, bam, it's delivered to the house. We opened it up and it, it really is amazing. And I, you know, we started talking about it originally here on 83 Weeks. And we've got a really super loyal listener by the name of Michael Mackey in Australia. I actually met. Michael, when I was on tour of Australia last year, and Michael just the other day sent me a picture that he had done of his, him and his wife and his kids. Amazing, amazing, you know, artwork. So I, it's inexpensive. You know, you, you get to pick your artist, as you said, you get to see the the work as it's being done. So if you have any notes or comments and you want to make adjustments, you can, I mean, these artists are really, they're working for you. And the, the, the final product is mind blowing. It, it looks like something that would have cost you five or eight or $10,000 to have done. So it's great opportunity, special gift. And, and don't take my word for it. Go check out Ric Flair's Instagram, scroll through and you'll see a picture of him kissing Wendy. It looks like a picture. It's not, it's a painting. It's outstanding and get yours for 30% off. When you text E R I C to 64,000, let's get back to Steve Austin, uh, clash of the champions, 24. Austin and Lord Steven Regal, who is substituting for an injured Brian Pillman are going to lose the tag titles to Arn and Roma. So that's the end of the tag title run. Let's fast forward to uh, October 11th. It's uh, WCW Saturday night, Rick and Arn wrestle Vader and Steve to a 35 minute, no contest. It was supposed to be Sid and Rick, but as they were entering the ring, uh, the awesome Kongs attacked Sid outside of the ring and Arn replaced him in the match. And, uh, several months later. Sid's manager would start making overtures to uh, Steve to become his manager. 
So the blondes are still actively together, but Colonel Robert Parker is approaching Steve during blondes interviews and trying to talk to Steve, but totally ignoring, uh, Brian. And this is the beginning of the blonde split. I'm curious why split up a good thing, a and B why in the world does Steve Austin need Colonel Robert Parker? Yeah. None of that makes sense to me at all. Again, I'm not trying to you know, make sure none of this shit that's hitting the fan at this point in WCW lands on me. I just wasn't involved in the process, so I can't answer why some of these choices or decisions were made creatively. It was driven primarily by uh, Bill Watts at the time and, and Dusty. And look, Dusty, you know, Dusty had to make Bill Watts happy. If Bill Watts wanted to do something and wanted to make a change, Dusty's job was to try to figure out the most entertaining way to do it. So I, I don't understand the mo- motivation for splitting them up. I wasn't involved in the process. I don't recall hearing any of the reasons why. Uh, I'm sure Steve probably has a perspective that he covered in his book and other people probably have written and talked about it. Um, but what strikes me is the most odd. And I look, I love Colonel Parker's work. I think as a talent, um, again, we use the phrase often, you know, underrated. Uh, he was great on the mic. I mean, he was, he was amazing, but he was also six foot five or four or something, yeah. you know, Steve's what six foot. So it's another situation where you've got a kind of like diamond Dallas page in a way. Not, you know, page didn't have Parker's ability at this point on the mic, but you've got, you know, a guy that, you know, stands five, six, seven inches taller than the talent. Eh, not a good look on television. Yeah. It is a weird look to be clear. Uh, we should, uh, keep it going here. Halloween havoc. It's the U S title. Steve Austin gets a shot, but Dustin Rhodes is successful in defending the title, but Austin lays him out with the belt after the match. Uh, then the blinds would defeat Chris Sullivan and Chris Kern. And on the outside, Parker comes down and starts insulting Brian about his injured leg. Pillman hits Parker. And then Steve attacks Brian and leaves him laying. And then Austin leaves with Parker and that's the end of the Hollywood blinds. And Austin has said he didn't want to split up. He wanted to stay in a team with Brian in hindsight. I mean, this is probably one of the more over teams WCW had had in years to the point that they even, I know you're going to laugh at this, but the smart fans were with it too. Uh, the fans voted them the tag team of the year in 1993. Um, what'd you think? Was it a mistake in hindsight to break them up? Oh, you know, I, I don't know how to answer that. You know, in hindsight, that's easy in hindsight. Sure. In hindsight, but in, you know, in the context of that time frame and what WCW's needs were and what the potential creative strategy was in 1993, it's hard to say. There may have been a better idea on the table. There may have been other logistical reasons why, um, you know, it was time to split the team up. I, and I, I wasn't a part of any of that discussion, so I don't know. But again, I think it's important that fans realize, you know, you ask the question, in hindsight, was it a mistake? Easy call. Easy call. We could all be rocket scientists. You know, we could have cured the coronavirus five years ago had we known about it. You know, if, and I, I don't want to get into a political discussion here, but there's a lot of things that could have been different in the way the situation we're in now was handled. Had we all, you know, had a crystal ball, 
<laughs> and, and been able to see into the future. You know, when we talk about things like this, was it a good decision? Was it a bad decision in 1993? You have to put yourself in 1993 and you have to put yourself in the conditions that existed at the time that decision made was made. And that's a really hard thing to do. So in hindsight, sure, stupid idea. God damn, what were they thinking? But if you were in that moment and faced with the challenges or choices that you were faced with in 1993, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea. They come to a head, Clash of the Champions 25, November 10th, 1993. Austin would pin Pillman. They were a dominant tag team through 93, and after they broke up, they only have one singles match at a clash. There's no rematch later. There's no rematch on pay-per-view. It feels like a major missed opportunity. Do you think somebody had uh, thoroughly been pissed off by Brian Pillman or what? Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. You know, and again, standing on the periphery, watching what was going on and hearing it, by the way, because there was, you know, the Bill Watts era, it was brief, but it was significant. Um, Bill Watts came in like a bull in a china shop, old school promoter. I remember when I, when I first heard that Bill Watts was coming in, um, I didn't know who Bill Watts was when I, when I, you know. Oh my God, you know, Jim Ross was in it. Jim was excited because Jim had history with Bill and, you know, was, they had a great relationship. So Jim was excited, but I had never heard of Bill Watts prior. So I was, I was actually still commuting, I believe, from Minneapolis to Atlanta when Bill came in. So I was only in Atlanta for a couple of days a week doing what I had to do in post-production and an occasional TV taping. And then I would fly back to Minneapolis. So I was staying at the Omni Hotel which was adjacent to the CNN center that Ted also owned. And I remember uh, being in my room when I got the word about Bill Watts. So I called Vern Gagne and, and said, hey, Vern, what do I need to know about this guy? And, you know, Vern said, look, you know, he's old school. He's hard-headed, you know, but you're used to that because I had worked for Vern and Vern was pretty hard-headed in old school. He goes, he's, he's a good man. Just watch yourself. Just watch yourself. And I went, oh, okay, good advice. Um, shortly thereafter, you know, when Bill came in, started making a bunch of radical changes, you know, contractually, which, you know, again, easy to be critical of the way, you know, Bill went about it, but keep in mind when, when Bill Watts came in, WCW was hemorrhaging cash. WCW had been hemorrhaging cash since the day Ted Turner bought it. Um, not only was it hemorrhaging cash, there was no real direction or, understanding of how to get your hands to get one's hands around the WCW business model. Cause it was all over the fucking place. I mean, there were so many things we've talked about the travel issues in the past and how talent was across the board. You know, I'm, I'm sure there were people that didn't partake, but there was a lot of people scamming the whole travel department for hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not more. Um, and Bill came in and, you know, was tasked with trying to get a handle on this. So there was a lot to get a handle on, 
because of the dysfunction and lack of direction of WCW during this period of time. Then you take a guy like Bill Watts, who was a bull in a china shop, my way, the highway, kind of hard-hitting guy, thrust him into a situation where the talent had not experienced anything like that before. And now we're all of a sudden being held accountable and their contracts were being cut and a lot of other things. There was a tremendous amount of anxiety and and that's not even anxiety. There was a ton of talent that were pissed off and were quite vocal about it. Then you take into a fact that, you know, Bill Watts creatively wanted to, you know, ban certain moves, you know, off the top rope moves, which I understand, by the way. Again, not compatible with even early 90s TV at that point. It was more of a 70s thing. Bill was reaching back into his 70s and 80s, you know, mid-south bag of trip tricks, trying to make things work in, in a new environment. I don't think Bill Watts really had a handle on television in the 90s. I think, again, a lot like Vern Gagne, who I had a ton of respect for and certainly still do, even since his passing. Uh, I'll never not respect you know Vern and what he accomplished and certainly the opportunity that he gave me. But Bill, Vern and Bill were very much alike, and they were stuck in the 70s mentality. One of the things that Bill wa- wanted to do in addition to banning certain moves was take the mats away from ringside. You know, and have hard concrete floors. Well, the talent was used to bumping around, again, early 90s, relatively speaking, doing a lot of things where the action was spilled out onto the floor in some pretty dramatic ways. Well, you're taking that out of the talent's repertoire. They can't do that anymore. And, it was so, and, and Bill Watts was a bully, a, a bad bully. He wanted to prove everybody to everybody he was the toughest guy on the roster, even though he wasn't on the roster. And I think all of those things combined created probably one of the most tumultuous backstage environments, maybe to this day, as crazy as, as things were, you know, throughout WCW's history and probably WWF's history too during certain periods. I would have to imagine that the the Bill Watts era backstage and his relationship with talent was probably one of the most tumultuous times that I've ever experienced, at least. Let's, uh, let's keep it going. Let's go to battle bowl. 1993. We get Austin and flair to beat Scorpio and max Payne. So Austin and flair advance to the battle Royale later in the pay-per-view. Eventually Vader picks up the win there. Is it battle Royale or battle Royal? That's uh, it doesn't matter, right? No, it does matter. Is it, Cause I, I, you know, I end up repeating some of the stuff and well, if it's wrong, I, I always say battle Royal, but I, I said battle Royale there to entertain myself. I think it was just, it kind of like in the movie um what was it uh tarantino movie with oh, john pulp, travolta pulp fiction is what you're thinking pulp fiction yeah royal with cheese baby was it a royal with cheese or a real with cheese no, he says royale in the movie royale okay well then it's battle royale if well, it's good enough for quentin tarantino and pulp fiction <laughs> it's good enough for us i think that was the european pronunciation though that's the reason they did it me like like i say theater and and bruce's dumbass says theater Bruce is sophisticated. Yeah, whatever. Uh, Bruce eats meat out of a can. I'm not going to say that he's sophisticated. You know, Bruce gets you know, Bruce gets Manny Petties all the fucking time. He he lives for him. You know, when I was living in Stanford for a very brief period, because when I got to to WWE last summer, I got there like July. 20th or 16th or something like that is when Lori and I pulled into town. Bruce was still commuting. He hadn't sold his house and moved to Stanford yet. So Bruce and I were, you know, we were together, you know, a couple days a week when Bruce was in town, but he would go back to Houston and Lori and I were still in Stanford. And Bruce would look at me and go, man, you got to get a 
you got to get a manicure. What the fuck are you looking at my fingernails for? It's kind of creepy anyway. But no, dude, I mean, he was serious about it, talking me into getting a manicure. And then, of course, my wife, she jumped in. Stephanie, Bruce's wife, jumped in. Now I'm getting triple teamed here about getting a mani-pedi. And I'd laugh long, blow it off, you know, find a way to change the subject. And then, like, two days later, Bruce would send me a picture of him sitting in a mani-pedi chair with his – you know, jeans rolled up like Huckleberry Finn with his feet in this little dish and this lady working on his feet. And I was like, man, he is really into the shit. And he would send me pictures of his fingernails, you know, after he'd had his manicure and how, how well manicured they were and polished, by the way, polished. Yeah. He puts, he puts clear coat on his fingernail. It's like not, by the way, he does that because Vince does. I was just going to say that's, you know, I think Bruce has known Vince and been close to Vince for many, 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 many years, 20, 30 years, whatever. I think Bruce kind of looks up to Vince and I don't want to say a father figure kind of way, but certainly looks up to Vince and respects Vince as he should, by the way. And I, I think he's like taking this kid out of Houston and, you know, putting him in Connecticut and you have to adapt. You get Manny Petties. No. I never did. I never succumbed to the pressure. I resisted the peer pressure. I'm telling you, when you come to Huntsville, I'm, I'm, I'm holding you down and getting you a pedicure done. No, but I'll tell you what, the other thing is, even though, you know, Bruce tried to convince me to, to do it, you know, it's, I, I I'm not going to lie. There were times when I'd be, you know, in a meeting with Vince and, you know, he'd look down at the table and I go, oh my God, is he looking at my fingernails? <laughs> oh my God. Is he holding, is Vince, hold, does he hold it against me that my fucking scraggly ass mechanic looking fingernails aren't, you know, perfectly manicured. Oh my God. I've got on a $1,500 suit. Why isn't he looking at my tie? He's looking at my fucking fingernails. I started getting paranoid about it. I almost succumbed. I almost got a mani petty. Thank goodness. I got fired before I succumbed and stooped to that level. Hang on, but you'd rather be fired than get a manicure. Uh, look, I look at the bright side of everything. And thank goodness I got fired before I had to succumb and, and, and do something that I was so adamantly against. I just didn't want to sit there and get my feet worked on by people I don't know. It's just not my thing. And the manicure just was never that important to me. It's like, who the fuck cares about your fingernails? As long as they're clean. I really don't care if they're fucking polished, if they're rounded or squared or buffed or gloss. I don't give a fuck. Just do the work. Just do the work. There's no reason to have shiny fingernails if you get the fucking work done. You know, so I'm, no, I'm 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 kind of yeah. I'm. This has been building up. You know, there was a lot of pressure <laughs> on me to get a fucking mani pedi. I love that this is the same guy who told Tony Schiavone that the ratings to Nitro will be better if he lost 20 pounds, and now. Well, You're- people look at you. You <laughs> see your entire fucking body. How many people would say, look, the ratings would be better if you get your fucking fingernails buffed. Well, Nobody gives a fuck about your fingernails. Well, as long as they're clean, they just need to be clean. I, That's I, all they need. The rumor and innuendo is, uh, you had a, a nail file when you were hanging out and catering for those six weeks when nobody could find you. That's bullshit. I've never owned a nail file. <laughs> I trim those, I trim these fuckers with my teeth and you weren't catering either. I'm just busting balls. All right. December, uh, 27th, 1993 it's Starcade. Steve is going to beat Dustin in a two out of three falls match to win the U S title. Austin wins the first fall by DQ Dustin and then pins Dustin in the second fall. So he beats him two straight, which is a little different. Usually it's one, one, and then the rubber 
uh, not here. Uh, Steve went straight through kind of a cool moment to end 1993 going out on a high note. He's now the U S champion. We cruise on into 1994 and he's getting ready for a match with, uh, um, great Muda, I believe, but on the way there, we've got super brawl in the thunder cage. It's Pillman staying in Rhodes, taking on Austin rude and Orndorff Pillman is going to pin Austin. And then later in the show, Flair would defeat uh, Vader in a thunder cage match. Thunder cage. Thunder uh, cage. Lot, lots that must have been about, that must have been about the time the movie Thunderdome came out. I think that's that my was, guess. It was a little before that, but that's certainly the inspiration. Um Sting and Austin work a lot of house shows, but never have a match on a pay per view. Do you know if that was ever discussed? I don't know. It should have been. I don't know why that I, I have no idea what the thinking was there. There's some, uh, questions raised in a late February 94 observer, uh, where David writes some question regarding the futures of Austin Pillman and Simmons. The first two have contracts that expire shortly. Austin is known to be coveted by Titan and apparently wants a raise from his 190 grand deal. Pillman has a deal in the 240 range. And there's some question as to whether or not they'll try to cut his salary down. And Simmons is working without a contract and has been for some time. Uh, and then as you might imagine, three weeks later, uh, Meltzer would write the status of Pillman in Austin has been considered murky. Uh, Pillman's contract expired a few weeks ago, but he is fulfilling his commitments through the pay-per-view, but isn't on the booking sheets after April 17th with the understanding the sides are far apart enough on figures where WCW is offering a serious pay cut believed to be in the 50 to $60,000 range, which would take him from 240 to 50-ish down to 190. And, uh, Meltzer would say Austin is on the booking sheets through the end of May, but his contract expires before that. He wants a significant raise and, but, but they're offering him an additional cut and pay and, uh, fast forward two weeks later and Meltzer would report that, uh, you have righted the ship and you have signed both Austin and Pillman to two year contract extensions. Uh, Meltzer would say both Pillman and Austin had met with Titan in recent weeks and tested the waters with all Japan. And we're considered to be somewhat likely to leave the promotion. It's believed that Austin's new contract calls for 200 dates at a present rate. WCW won't book 200 shows. So he'll certainly get his downside guarantee, which is $1,000 per show, which will be a slight raise from his 190. So allegedly, according to the observer, he's making 190 wants a raise. You guys want to give him a pay cut. You settle on a thousand dollars a show for 200 shows. He's going to make 200 grand. Any of that ring a bell? You know, to address this, I, we would really have to go back and look specifically at the timeline with regards to Bill Watts's uh, tenure with the company and, and when and where he left along that timeline. Bill Watts was the guy, and again, not being critical here. I've been plenty critical of Bill, and, and deservedly so. But, you know, coming in and trying to get a handle on the contracts, um, understandable. You know, like I said, WCW was hemorrhaging money. The way Bill went about it, his bull in a china shop approach and, and cutting budget and, and how he communicated that. It's not that he was trying to get a handle on the contracts. And look, nobody wants to get their contracts cut. Nobody wants to make money, less money next year than they made, you know, the previous year. I get that. But it's how you communicate that. And finesse, you know, wasn't a part of Bill Watts's vocabulary. So it 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 was a challenge. But when according well, not according depending on 
where and when Bill Watts' departure was within this timeline, I think at that point, and again, I wasn't calling these shots. When I first got into management, I oversaw television, the production of it, you know, and all the things that went along with it. Um, I Wrestling operations, which was uh, the way WCW was structured at the time, it was kind of split into two halves. You had the television production side of, you know, WCW, and and then you had the operation side. The operation side included wrestling operations, which I did not oversee. You know, Bob Dew did, oh, and and he relied heavily upon Dusty and and um, um, Ollie Anderson had a lot of influence at the time, amongst others. Now I got to chime in about certain talent and how I thought talent may affect television ratings, and I certainly. Um, was supportive of of Steve and Brian at that point in time. So to a degree, I had some influence, but I didn't actually make the decisions as to how the, the contracts were structured or what their offers were with respect to the agreements that you're laying out in front of me right now. So who, when, and how, um, the, I wasn't really involved with it. The Watts contract, uh, that, that would have happened before you, of course, but Watts has been gone a year at this point. So okay. at this point, you're, you're the man in charge and you decide to retain both of these guys services, but certainly the rap on bill Watts and Brian Pillman was he wanted him to take a, a, a pay cut because he didn't think he had the size or the presentation that he wanted to feature and Pillman didn't have to do that. He had a contract. So he said, no, thanks. And Watts said, well, I'm going to beat you every night. And apparently Pillman remarked, well, I'll be the highest paid jobber on the roster. Um, good for him. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, either way you, you sign them both. They're here. We should mention Colonel Robert Parker has now brought in three Asian wrestlers to help Steve prepare for the great Muda and the great Muda match is going to go down on spring stampede, April 17th, 1994. What a big show that was, but this is a really lame finish. Uh, Austin gets the win by DQ when Muda backdrops him over the top rope. Pretty lame finish for such a big match. Do you think just the politics of, of uh, the agreements you had with Japan would dictate that this was the finish or, I mean, cause a DQ for going over the top rope on a paper, that's pretty, that's pretty weak. Yeah, it's different. I look, my experience in working with new Japan, it, it, it was politics free. My my discussions with New Japan, my discussions with Masa uh, Saito, my discussions with Inoki, I didn't have political pressure. I had logistical pressure. I had logistical considerations in terms of you know what we were doing here in the United States and how we we finish matches. Um, there was, you know, we're, we're, we're getting somebody ready for a big pay-per-view next month. You know, we had to be a little bit careful how they were, how they were going to lose or, or win, um, based on what we were doing next and in new Japan had the same considerations, but it wasn't, you know, when I, when I hear the word political, that to me infers, you know, selfishness and, you know, greed and, and that type of thing. That wasn't the case with new Japan. It doesn't mean there weren't issues that we had to address, Again, logistical, sometimes creative issues, but they weren't political in nature. You know, they weren't, they weren't self-serving in in a nefarious way, in a greedy way. Somebody who's going to be serving in a big way is fairway meat market. 
The fairway meat market has always been considered the backbone of their operation and what customers can expect from fairwaymeatmarket.com is the same great hand cut stuff by fairway employees. That's going to ensure the best possible quality. It's the same quality that they promise at the counter, but now it's delivered to your home. And you may not realize this, but fairways meat markets come straight from America's heartland. This is quality meat in corn country, baby. Has given you access to the highest quality meat in America, and you don't have to live in Iowa or somewhere like that in order to get it because now Fairway Meat Market comes to you. We're talking premium beef and all natural pork raised by family farmers, and their Duroc certified heritage pork is crafted in small batches by Midwest Family Farms, making it some of the most succulent pork you have ever tasted. Each and every cut is done by their highly experienced team of butchers. And you're going to ensure you get the same quality that they put in their customer's store experience. Now you get the same wide selection of everything that fairway offers ribs to ribeyes, pork chops, and beef tenderloin. They've got every style and cut that your kitchen can handle. Now here's how the process works. It's sort of one, two, three, number one, visit fairwaymeatmarket.com. Number two, select your favorite meat products. And number three, stand by your grill, baby, waiting patiently. Cause here it comes. They've also got some cool little recipes and grilling tips. So you can make sure you impress the entire family and friends when they come over and give them a meal. They won't forget, but they've got a special offer for you because you listen to this show and Eric knows a lot about this. I think Hogan on TV once called him a meat salesman. Uh, well, these week, this week, our listeners can get the heartland package, which is a $230 value for just 99 bucks plus free shipping. When you enter the promo code 83. At fairwaymeatmarket.com. Here's what you'll get in this Heartland package eight of these eight ounce all natural Duroc boneless pork chops. You got to try these, it's going to blow your mind. You're going to get six eight ounce USDA choice ribeye steaks. And of course, you get one awesome side dish either loaded potato bake, which is a hit at my house, the gourmet cheesy corn, or my mom's favorite, the brisket baked beans. This is more than 50% off the best meat in America plus free shipping. That's fairwaymeatmarket.com. Use our promo code 83 and look for the heartland package. And I want to mention that fairway is F A R E W A Y fairway Eric, we got our meat. Mine is awesome. You know, a thing or two about me. I'm sure you love yours as well. I love my meat. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I keep forgetting. Um, listen, I, I enjoy great barbecue grilling. I love it. I love it. And I can't wait to get to the Conradison. I, I think we're having a little get together. I don't want to spill the beans on that until everybody's ready, but I think we're going to get together with you know, a couple dozen or more of our closest friends uh, from Patreon and, and you're going to be the grill master. And I can't wait to try these direct pork chops on, off your big green egg. That being said, high quality meat is hard to find. There's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of meat out there. If you go to your, your local Walmart or the local supermarket, wherever you shop, there's a ton of it there, but there's, it's hard to find good quality meat. You need to look, you need to know what you're looking for. And I can tell you having been, a sales manager for a food for frozen food processor for several years in Minneapolis. I did learn a lot about the different qualities of meat. More importantly, where meat is, where, where cattle are grown, 
And there's a misperception or misconception, misperception out there that, you know, if you live in the Midwest, Midwest, you have access to some of the greatest, you know, Midwest corn fed beef, you know, in Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, Kansas, kind of the heartland of the, the beef growing community, at least quality beef growing community. But the truth is a lot of that really, really high quality meat is shipped off where you can get the most money for it. New York, L.A., Chicago. Seattle, um, bigger markets, right? So the people that live in the Midwest, for example, end up getting meat. And I'm not knocking, you know, other other people's product from around the country. I don't want any hate mail on my social media or hate tweets, I should say, because uh, I'm knocking, you know, cattle from around the country. But for example, you know, you go out to Texas. Yeah, there's a lot of cattle, you know, processed and produced there. However, you know, they're not eating you know, the same things as cattle that are raised and processed in the Midwest, where there's a, just more availability of grass and corn because you're not in the southwestern part of the United States where that stuff just doesn't grow quite the same. So there is a difference in quality meat, but just because you live in the Midwest doesn't mean you're getting access to good quality Midwest beef. Here at Fairway, you're getting that good quality meat wherever you live. And better yet, given what's going on right now, they're delivering it to your door. Awesome. Can't beat it. Fairwaymeatmarket.com. Use that promo code 83 uh, when you get that Heartland package. It's 230 bucks worth of stuff for just $99 and free shipping. That's fairwaymeatmarket.com. Use that promo code 83. And we should mention, Eric, uh, you and I have uh, made the decision to uh, pivot on Patreon We've got a big announcement coming. We're not yet announcing it this week, but we will next week. But on Monday, uh, the 30th of this month, all of our shows, all five of my shows here on Westwood one will be available ad free with some bonus content. Uh, and, and we're going to kick it off that week with a series of really incredible shows, including the one topic we said we would never talk about here on this show. Uh, it won't be released through the traditional channel, but it will be released uh, through Patreon. So stay tuned. It's going to be a very affordable option. And, uh, as a thank you to the folks who have supported us on our regular Patreon, uh, we're throwing a big shindig here in Huntsville and, uh, looking forward to getting everybody down. And I guess I'm going to be cooking them some Duroc pork chops, man. It's going to be a good time. I can't wait, but wait a minute. We're going to be talking about something that you and I agreed. We'd never talk about before. Do I need to hire an attorney? No, it's, it's just for our friends on Patreon. I'll, I'll sell, yeah, I'll I, sell it to y'all fair. You'll be fine with it. Okay. I, you know, cause I, you know, I you don't want to get sued. You I guess there's, you know, there's one thing but, you could never talk about. And I'm like, okay, cool. We're going to do it on Patreon. You're such a prick. <laughs> cause you, cause you know, you'll suck me into it. You know, I'll say to you, no, we're not going to talk about that. And then we'll be doing whatever we're going to do. And then you'll just gently put, you know, you'll, you'll set that hook ever so lightly where I think I can get away. And then bam. You'll, you'll just sink that hook in. Now I've got no way to get out of it. And before I know it, I'm in litigation. Well, yeah, that might be your existence, but it won't be mine. I'll be fine. We are going to talk about other stuff with the other hosts too, though. Like our most requested topic I think I've ever had is the plane ride from hell. And Jim Ross was on the plane. So we're going to do that with JR. We'll talk about WrestleMania eight with Bruce. Like we're loading it for bear, man. This, uh, this new sort of super Patreon we're doing for bonus content and uh, ad free shows for the entire network is going to be something else. Stay tuned. More stuff coming your way, but 
How about this for a little fun distraction? May 7th, the tuxedo match on Worldwide with Austin and Johnny B. Bad. Of course, Austin gets the win. He would also pick up a win at Slamboree 94 when he beats Johnny B. Bad to retain. Uh, and then Austin loses to Johnny B. Bad by DQ, but Austin still retains at Clash 25. And then at Bash at the Beach 94, Austin would pin Steamboat again to retain in a match that Meltzer gave three three quarter stars. And around this time, Austin and Colonel Parker split up. There's no real angle. There's no real explanation. And I think it's just explained on commentary during the match that uh, Parker felt it was better for Austin that he focus on his own career. Do you remember why this comes to an end and there's a big separation here? I, I, I wish I did. And I wish I was fast enough on my feet to make some shit up that sounded plausible, but I, because I wasn't involved in it, I, I just can't, you know, I can't recall the details. I really can't. Interesting concept. You guys try on July 9th, 1994, it's Saturday night. And there's an angle where fans can call in and vote for the main event of the show. The baby faces are in one locker room. The heels are in another. When we get a shot of the heel locker room, Steve Austin is standing next to Jean-Paul Levesque who we now know as Triple H. And this is back in 1994, uh, for what it's worth. Sting and Ric Flair wind up winning the voting. No surprise there. Uh, July 19th on Saturday night, it's Rick and Austin on one side, Sting and Steamboat on the other. Pretty famous tag match. It's even on one of the Austin WWE uh, DVDs that they released. Uh, and he has you know quite the tear through the summer, picking up lots of wins and working with his friends, whether it's Ricky Steamboat or Brian Pillman. He even has some tag matches with Sting and Steamboat on one side, and he's tagging with Ric Flair. And uh, Steve has gone on record as saying that those were some of the highlights because he grew up such a huge Flair mark. The idea that he got to share the same ring with him was just something special. Clash of the Champions 28. Austin finally lose, loses the U.S. title. He loses it here to Ricky Steamboat. He's had it nine months, which is a very long run in that era. And it's interesting to note that Steamboat wound up being the guy who beat him for both the TV title and the U.S. title. And uh, it's a pretty cool deal, a pretty cool little coincidence that it's the same guy who beat him for both titles. It is indeed, but I want to go back to something that you kind of passed over pretty quickly. The episode of WCW Saturday Night where we had, you know, two locker rooms full of talent and we we let the, you know, viewers call in to decide who they wanted to see. That idea was my idea. I think it was the precursor for what became known as Cyber Tuesday, Tuesday. whatever it was. Yeah, in in WWE, you know, several years later. But we actually, you know, we wanted to use real tabulation. We didn't want to work it. We wanted, we didn't want to, we didn't want to have our show already booked and just announce, you know, the participants that were voted on by, by the audience and, and not have any basis of fact or reality. But what we did do was position talent in specific ways where we knew how they were going to vote. Right. Sure. Um, but one of the more interesting things about that show, and I think I have this right again, I, I don't sit here and you know break all this shit down and look at history and timelines. I think I was doing the play by play on that show. I have to go back and look, but if I'm, if memory serves me correctly, this was the episode where I was standing. I don't think I was sitting in a broadcast booth. I believe we were in center stage and I was standing for some reason at this point doing color and play by play or doing my play by play. And I had now, now I have dental implants right in my front teeth across the top. 
Um, when I was a kid, I got my teeth knocked out with a baseball bat. So I've, I've all, always had, you know, fucked up upper teeth, you know, growing up as a kid and into my teens and twenties and even in my thirties at this point that we're talking about. And I had what they call a flipper plate, um, that had my front teeth in it, my two front teeth. And what the flipper plate was, it was just like a piece of plastic that was form fitted to the roof of your mouth. And on the front of it, you had your two fake teeth, right? And this was before dental implants even existed. Um, so I had this flipper plate and I'm in the, you know, again, this is Saturday night, WCW Saturday night. So it's a live show uh, on this particular show. And I'm doing my, I'm doing my thing, right? I'm selling my ass off. And as I'm standing there, I don't know what the word was when I said, probably something like Thursday or thank you, whatever it was. I had my tongue against my teeth that I'm projecting, you know, for the, for the audience and my teeth go flying out of my mouth on camera. Right. And I remember this because it was, it still is in my head. First of all, it's frightening as fuck. Like it's what you're always afraid of when you have fake teeth and you know that weren't screwed in there permanently is they're going to fall out at the worst possible moment. Well, this was the worst fucking possible moment. I'm assuming the camera's tight on me. I'm as passionate and as exciting as I could possibly be, and I'm trying to make this big event really cool. And in the midst of what was, I'm sure, a phenomenal performance on camera, my teeth come flying out of my mouth in, and I see it in my head to this day in slow motion. Now I'm right-handed. I'm holding a microphone in my right hand as my teeth, the trajectory of my teeth at that point would have probably put them halfway to ringside because center stage was a small venue at the very last moment. I slowly ever so slowly, it was actually quickly, but in my mind it was slowly because it's playing back in slow motion. I reach out as I'm still doing play-by-play with no front teeth, hoping beyond all of God's hope that the camera isn't tight on me because now I got no front teeth. And I reach out with my left hand, snatch my teeth out of midair, quickly put them back into my mouth in effortlessly slide them into the proper position and carry on with a live broadcast. That's what I remember about that show. It's fun how certain moments like that really stick out. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I'm sure, uh, our crack team of, uh, of fans and Chris McDonald and Dave Silva, they're going to have fun with that story very soon. Well, I, 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 you know, again, I know I may, again, this is 25 fucking years ago. So I'm pretty sure that was the show where my teeth went flying out of my mouth, but I want to assure our audience that now, you know, with dental technology and science being what it is, I have firmly planted and very expensive implants. And I no longer have the flipper plate issue. No longer do my teeth come flying out of my mouth. Doesn't mean they won't at some point, because I tend to be a smart ass from time to time and somebody <laughs> may kick them out. <laughs> but for the time being, at least, they're firmly implanted into my skull. Let's get to Fall Brawl, September 18th. It's supposed to be a rematch between Steamboat and Austin, but Steamboat suffers a back injury, which ultimately is going to cost him his career. So the title is just given back to Austin in the ring. And uh, then the commissioner, uh, Nick Bockwinkel, announces he has to defend it against Jim Duggan. 
and Jim Duggan defeats Austin in 35 seconds to win the U.S. title. Let's move on. <laughs> oh my God. Meltzer writes in the September 26th observer. It was a bad weekend for Steve Austin. Not only did he have to, uh, put Duggan over in 30 seconds, but his house flooded the day before. It's just unbelievable. On the October 3rd issue of the observer, Meltzer would write, it's believe Sherry Martell will be moved to join up with Steve Austin, who will be getting a character makeover and receive his long awaited push to the top. Others are saying Austin will at best tread water when it comes to his position, because there's a plan for a series of monster to, uh, monsters to occupy the top spots. Do you remember there being a discussion about, Hey, let's put Sherry with him and try to shine him up and do something different. Cause I could see if that's the pitch, maybe he wouldn't be pissed off about losing the title to Duggan in 30 seconds. No, that again, that was dusty. You know, I wasn't away from creative as best I could. Uh, at that point, I tried not to involve myself in it. And when I say that it's, you know, part of it was because I was insecure about my own abilities and I, I didn't want to be, um, a worthless cook in the kitchen. Uh, I had a lot of confidence in dusty and I, and I tend to be a macro manager. I, I always have been, you know, I, I try to put the right people in the right places and let them do their jobs without too much interference until things start going bad. So I, it, it's not that not only was I concerned about my lack of experience and how much I could really contribute in the creative process, and I just honestly didn't want to be in the way, uh, I wanted to give Dusty every opportunity to do what Dusty wanted to do, or Ric Flair when Ric Flair was in that position, right? Same could be said to a degree with Kevin Sullivan, although by by that time I started getting more involved in, in 95, 96. But at this period of time, you know, I was pretty much hands-off on the creative, so I don't recall any of the discussions as to why and how they wanted to put Sherry with Austin. Uh, I do remember the pairing and the discussion of it. And to me, it made a lot of sense. You know, Steve hadn't emerged at this point. His character hadn't grown into what we now know as the Austin 316 character, Stone Cold Steve Austin. He was still a work in process. And if, again, as I said at the beginning of the show, you go back and listen to, you know, Steve and I, when Steve was reflecting back on his, you know, tenure at WCW and how I fired him and why I fired him and all that kind of stuff, he really opens up about it. And Steve Austin, you know, the Steve Austin that we're talking about in this era wasn't the same talent. He wasn't, he had all, you know, Great. Crystal ball, you know, solve every problem in the world if you have one. But if you don't have one and you're honest about it, Steve Austin hadn't emerged as a great talker at this point. I don't think Steve had the confidence in himself or I don't even know his confidence. I don't think Steve's ever lacked confidence. I just don't think at this point that we're discussing now in Steve's career, he had a vision for that character that he felt passionate about. Um, he hadn't emerged yet. He hadn't found his voice yet. However you want to say it. Um, that had not happened yet. So, you know, Sherry was a great, anybody that's listened to me on this podcast knows, you know, the respect I have for Sherry Martell and how amazing of a talent she was physically in the ring, as well as her ability to be a great character out of the ring. So I, I think that matchup, you know, to me at that time, and even now looking back at it kind of made sense. Uh, Halloween Havoc 94, Duggan uh, gets a rematch with Steve Austin. Duggan wins by DQ and retains. He spends uh, most of October and November working against Steve Austin, and uh, Duggan wins them all. Um, wow. Yeah. 
Our clash of the champions uh, it goes down on November 16th. Again, Duggan beats Austin by DQ. This time it happens very quickly though, because Vader interferes. Austin is wearing a knee brace during this match and appears to be limping pretty heavily. And he doesn't wrestle again for the rest of 94. It turns out he blew his knee out two days prior in Sarasota. And he's probably not too terribly tore up about being out of action. If this is how he's going to be uh, used. Um, Can I stop you right there? Sure. And again, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to recreate, you know, the situation as it existed back then, but let's just for the sake of argument, if, if Steve is the victim of a series of injuries, nagging injuries, serious injuries, whatever the case may be, he's not a hundred percent. Would it have made sense for Dusty or anybody else who was in charge of creative at that point? Would it have made sense to put a ton of heat and oh. steam on a guy that was wobbling around and may or may not be able to perform in the weeks and months to come? Would it, is there not some creative justification for that decision? Again, put yourself in that moment, in that time. Don't, don't put your fucking 2020 hindsight glasses on and walk around, you know, fondling your crystal balls. Ask yourself a real question. If you're in dusty seat or whoever seat it was, whoever made that decision at that time, and you've got a great talent that you've been pushing, by the way, and you have believed in now for a couple of years at this point, right? By virtue of all of the great situations you put Steve in. If, again, if you're Dusty Rhodes, all of the effort, all of the great situations, the rocket ship, all of the things we've been talking about now for the last hour and a half or whatever it's been. But now that same piece of talent is wobbly, may or may not be able to perform, may or may not be able to depend on him, may or may not be able to promote him three months in advance for pay-per-view because you're not sure of his, his ability to perform. This situation isn't as obscene as it is on the surface. Just saying. Let's, uh, let's put on our tinfoil hats for a minute. Earlier in 94, let's go March or so. You guys are teasing that Austin and flair are going to wrestle for the flares world title. At some point, this is when Austin is the U S champ. Fast forward a couple of months. Hogan comes in. Austin loses the U S title. And it's quickly moved down the card, never comes back up. Now I'm not saying that Hogan did anything there, but I am saying this is one of those, or it feels like one of those classic plans change where without Hogan, maybe we did need an Austin, uh, flair feud. And there was, there would have been more opportunities, but when Hogan comes in, that's a game changer for WCW's business for a variety of reasons that we've covered on this show over the last two years. But Hogan has a certain style match and a certain type of story that he tells. And it usually involves a 300 or 400 pound, six foot seven giant. And Austin doesn't exactly check that box. And as a result, it feels like WCW shifts gears and goes with the biggest box office attraction they've ever had, which is what they should have done. But is it fair to say that had Hogan not come to WCW, perhaps Steve's existence in 94 and WCW would have been a little different. Could have been, you know, I mean, that's hypothetical at this point, uh, but recognizing 
the hypothetical nature of the question and therefore my response, I would suggest that we probably had, had Hulk, you know, and I never had a conversation. Had Hulk Hogan never come to WCW, is it likely that we would have ended up with Steve Austin and Ric Flair? Absolutely. Makes sense. Can't imagine that not have happening, not have happened had Hogan not come along. I'm also going to say, since this is hypothetical, that had Hogan not come along in WCW, had we moved forward with Ric Flair and Steve Austin, had we, you know, had I ended up, you know, not firing Steve Austin, you know, all of those hypothetical things that could have happened had Hogan not come to WCW, had we not shifted and pivoted, as you say, you know, all of our efforts to Flair and Hogan, um, I think that Austin and Flair would have had an amazing match. Austin probably would have remained in WCW for an indefinite period of time had Hogan not come along, um, had we not shifted gears. Um, and we wouldn't be talking about Stone Cold Steve Austin and, and Austin 316 today, 20 some odd years later. It would have happened. Don't believe me? Don't want to accept my, my, my take on this hypothetical situation? Again, go find Steve's podcast where he and I dig into this. And Steve talks about it. Steve talks about how, you know, his character as Stone Cold Steve Austin really emerged and, and all of the things that led up to it. So as we, you know, kind of look back and what if and hypothetically this and hypothetically that, had Steve Austin, Ric Flair moved forward without Hogan in the picture, none of us would have even heard of Stone Cold Steve Austin to this day. Would have been a great match. But it certainly would have, would not have advanced Steve's career. Meltzer reported in early December that it looks like Steve Austin's going to be out as long as eight months to a year because he's torn his knee in a major way. Uh, it looks like the PCLs are out and he's going to need reconstructive surgery. But this is a horrible time for the company to have this loss because Flair just lost a retirement match, at least in storyline, of course, and Steamboat's out with a debilitating back injury. Austin fast tracks the return. And he's back way early, February 3rd, 1995. His first match back is with Buff Bagwell for Worldwide, and it doesn't go well. Austin needs 12 stitches in his eye after a mistake in the ring. He doesn't wrestle the rest of the week, but he is back and ready to get going again. And he's getting lots of wins over enhancement talent. And then in uh, late March, uh, is featured in a main event against Sting on WCW Saturday night. They do a new U.S. title tournament. April 23rd, it comes to a head. Austin finally pins Duggan. And Austin would be pinned a few minutes uh, later by uh, Randy Savage in the U.S. title tournament. Um, This is an interesting match that feels like a fever dream. This is May 11th. I'm only bringing it up because it's so random. On one side, it's Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and Steve Austin. I'm sure Steve was thrilled to be in that six-man what a one half of that team. The other side is Sting, Alex Wright, and the Renegade. Ooh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Can we change the subject? You know what? I was, as we're talking, because I don't want to talk about this matchup. I really don't um, for obvious reasons. But I just got on my Twitter feed, Jerry Von Sprecken. I don't know if that's really Jerry's last name or not, but sent a picture. He sent it to you too. So it's in, it's in Europe. Um, a picture 
of Duroc pork chops at Fairway stores. These pork chops look fucking phenomenal. Anyway, sorry, I digress. I like Can we move that you on? got distracted by food and you tried to distract me with food because it's a fat guy <laughs> trick. I get it. Uh, the, uh, it's reported in the observer. This is worth mentioning here. It's the May 15th issue that Steve Austin refused to do a job for the renegade. It's written. Steve Austin had his meeting with Eric Bischoff earlier in the week and everything was worked out. Austin was pretty well forced because anything else would have killed Ric Flair's authority as a booker to do the job for renegade at the TV taping on May the 10th, at center stage and do another in two minutes to Randy Savage on May 11th in the U S title tournament. And there was a lot of talk in the exchange that they would reform the Hollywood blondes with a push, but that hasn't happened yet. Of course they never reformed the blondes, but do you remember having a sit down because he was upset about some of the creative? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, I think the, you know, the, the, the reference to Rick and undermining Rick as a booker, you know, was accurate. You know, here's, here's the, this is the one disadvantage I had early on in WCW again, not to beat this to death, but you know, I, I didn't have the confidence in myself to come in and make hard, tough, creative decisions. I knew that wasn't my wheelhouse. Right. So I put people in charge in this case, Ric Flair, who I believe did have that experience and the feel for the business that I didn't have at that point. Um, and the worst thing that you can do when you put somebody in authority or put somebody in a position of authority is allow the people that that person oversees to come to you, circumvent the process and have you, or in this case, me, um, make decisions that were in contrast to the decisions that in this case, Ric Flair made nothing would have, you know, unwound Rick's abilities, um, faster than that situation. So of course I backed the Rick. I did my best. I probably had my salesman hat on and got my shoes out and put them on, did some singing, some dancing, you know, everything I could do to mitigate the situation. But I, I would have backed Rick or anybody else that was in that position. Let's talk about Japan. We're finally here. Austin is sent to Japan, doing some work with new Japan. He's going to jump off the ropes to deliver a splash. He lands wrong on his right arm, tears the right tricep completely off the elbow. He wrestles for another two and a half weeks with a torn tricep. And of course his wonky knee, when he comes back to the States, he's got to get surgery to reattach the tricep to his arm. And Austin says, while he's out, sometimes he'd go to the uh, Saturday night tapings to visit with the boys and watch the matches. And, uh, during one visit, he passed Kevin Sullivan in the hallway and they had some small talk. And Austin said he felt Sullivan didn't like him for some reason. And Steve felt that Sullivan played a role in what was about to happen to him. And not long after that, Austin gets a call from your assistant at the time, I believe Janie Engel. And, uh, she tells him to give you a call. He says at that point, he knew what was going to happen. Uh, he makes the call and you tell him, I just want to let you know that based on the amount of money that we're paying you and based on the number of dates you've been incapacitated, we're going to exercise our right to terminate the agreement. That sound pretty close to the way you delivered the message. Mm, yeah. Steve, I mean, I, Steve then said, well, basically you're telling me I'm fired. Right. And you said, yeah. And then the next day he got his termination papers in the mail of course by FedEx and, uh, he was making like 300 grand at the time. 
do you remember anything else about that call in particular or how he took it or the tone or tenor of the conversation at all? No, but I think it's important. We skipped a part there. You know, it, it's important to, and again, I, I don't, I don't mean to be shilling for Steve Austin's podcast, but again, we go into great detail about what led up to his termination and how I handled his termination on Steve's own podcast. And it's, I think it's, it's valuable for our listeners to hear it from Steve himself. So they don't think that I'm trying to, you know, paint this picture in a way that may, makes me look you know, better than it should. But yeah, Steve, Steve, we were paying Steve a lot of money. It was a guarantee. And so, you know, yeah. And that was a consideration, not the most important consideration, but it was a consideration. My goal, knowing that Steve was in, injured and was going to be back eventually, was to keep his character alive, not let it just disappear like he fell off the face of the earth. So we were producing a show, uh, WCW Saturday Night Center Stage, and I thought, well, I know we can't wrestle, but let's get at least you know a minute and a half, two minutes, you know, backstage promo update, whatever on Steve Austin, just to keep him visible. So, you know, you didn't fall into that out of sight, out of mind kind of category. Right. So I told, I, I think it was Tony Schiavone, um, to, you know, give Steve a call. It was early enough in the afternoon. He could have made it, you know, to down his Steve lived outside of Atlanta, but it could plenty of time. He could have driven in, you know, shot the promo and been back home by seven o'clock, eight o'clock that night should have been no big deal. Right. So, I asked Tony to give Steve a call and Tony came back to me and you know, you now, you know, you, you work with Tony enough to can imagine, you know, how we would have delivered this information. He wouldn't have been excited or, or eager to share the, the tone and tenor of his conversation with Steve. He would have been reluctant to do it. And, and Tony was, cause he didn't want to bury Steve. You know, he was in a territory. I put Tony in a tough spot and Tony called Steve and, you know, um, Steve's wife, uh, answered the phone. His wife at the time answered the phone. I think it was lady blossom or whatever she was, whatever her real name was Jenny. She answered the phone and Tony said, Hey, uh, Tony's finally here. I need to talk to Steve. And I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't listening to the conversation. And the way it was reported back to me from Tony was that Steve's wife said, Hey, Steve, Tony Schiavone's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. And Tony could hear Steve yelling back to his wife, um, tell them sons of bitches I'm not here. Well, that's pretty bullshit, right? That's bullshit. He was there. He just didn't want to have a conversation. He didn't want to hear anything what I had to say. Or maybe he was in pain. Or I don't know. But nonetheless, Tony comes back to me and says, uh, rather sheepishly, um, but still being honest, uh, yeah, I called Steve's house and, um, spoke to his wife. You know, I hate to say this, but I could hear Steve in the background telling his wife to tell me that he's, he wasn't there. Well, you know, me a little bit, Conrad, you know, we've not, I mean, we do this podcast together and you know, you, you've, I think we've gotten to know each other pretty well. But you, you you don't know me real, real well. And there's like certain things that just fucking trigger me. And dishonesty is one of them, you know. And to me, in that moment, in that time, that was very dishonest. Now, had Steve picked up the phone and said to Tony, 
Tell her to go fuck himself. I'm not in a mood to come in or my knee or I'm in pain or I'm whatever. Yeah, I could have lived with that. That's the truth. That's a fact. But the sleight of hand, you know, to, to, to tell for Steve to tell his wife, to tell Tony that he wasn't home, that fell into another category for me. And I become irrational sometimes once I feel like somebody's being dishonest or not being transparent or overly manipulative. I can deal with it most of the time, but there are certain times when I just feel like, look, if I can't trust you, I don't have to like you. I don't have to agree with you. Uh, you know, we don't have to hang out as long as I can trust you. Even if, even if I can trust that you're going to be consistently dishonest, I'm generally okay with that because now I'm making a decision based on that. But if all of a sudden out of nowhere, somebody that I trust, believe, and I thought was, you know, pretty much honest with me, I find out that they're not, then shit starts getting irrational on my hand, on my half. And that was why I made the decision I made. And yes, when you ask me, does that sound like the conversation I would have had with Steve? Absolutely. Cause it was straightforward. There was no, I, there was no politics. There was no salesmanship. There was no, you know, I wasn't trying to mitigate the situation. It was like, this is what we're doing. We're moving on. Does that mean I'm fired? Yep. That, that's, I don't remember the conversation. I don't have it vividly, you know, you know, embedded in my brain, but it sounds about right. Supposedly, uh, Steve is upset by the way he was fired. He said he lived 30 miles from CNN center. He would have liked to have been fired face to face. I don't know what that really matters, but it was important to him. And he also says that sometime before he was fired, you said something like, you know, Steve, you might need to find something else to do for a living or somewhere else to go. Maybe new Japan or ECW, because you go out there in those black trunks and black boots, and there's not a whole lot of ways for me to market that. And you're basically a big injury prone piece of shit. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, no, 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 no. Look, I'm, you know, no, not buying that one. All right. That, the, 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 I would have never said that's just not me. But black boots, that, black trunks, that became the narrative for a long time. But that sure, was, it became the narrative, just like, you know, Uncle Eric and ATM Eric and a lot of shit became the narrative when guys went over to ECW that had been working for WCW and were trying to get themselves over. At about the same time that WCW, by the way, was really turning the corner. So it was easy to be anti-Eric, anti-WCW in order to get yourself over. Not an uncommon technique at that point. And it was for a long time. But it doesn't mean it was true. I now had, did I? Is it possible I could have referenced in some way, shape, or form in a conversation? Maybe we need to do something to get get more pop out of Steve. You know, sure. Uh, but the whole yeah, black boots, black tights, that'll never work. Shit, that's antithetical to everything that I've ever been a fan of or believed in since. So uh, ain't buying it. Not calling anybody a liar. Could have well. happened. I don't believe it. Talk to me about the ECW skits. You know, when he goes over to ECW, he does the Monday NyQuil segments. He, he imitates you. He wears a black wig. He does the Steve Amania Hulk Hogan ripoff. Lots of fun little stuff with your old pal, Paul Heyman. Did you see that? Did you hear about it? Did you care? Um, I saw it, you know, like I, I didn't see it on television cause I, I couldn't get ECW not being disrespectful at all to Paul or ECW or the people that were there where I lived in Atlanta. I couldn't get it. It wasn't available to me. Right. And, and so uh, it's the fact that I wasn't watching it on a regular basis had nothing to do with my opinion of it. It just, I couldn't get it. Uh, but 
on these particular the the skits that you're talking about, you know, I'd see them on tape. You know, people would send me a tape, or somebody would bring a tape in that could see it, and I said I laugh my ass off. Again, it, it's flattering to me. These guys needed me to get themselves over. You know, I, I was a heel. I was their heel, and it helped them. You know, I mean, that's the way I look at it. You know, I didn't take it personally. I didn't get upset about it. You know, I was kind of like, well, fuck. You know, I'm, I must be getting over if they're relying on me to get themselves over. Felt the same way about Mick Foley's stuff. You know, it didn't bother me a bit. So, yes, I saw it after it happened uh, via videotape that somebody else would give me. But, no, I didn't I didn't react negatively to it. I, I thought it was flattering. Still do. Let's talk about uh, when you work together again. Of course, he goes on to be the biggest star in the history of wrestling. WCW eventually goes on. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know. I'm going to be careful with that one, but go ahead. Okay. One or two. Uh, either way. Yeah. He, he goes on to be the second biggest name behind Hulk Hogan. Maybe the we third. We all know is our Lord's Rock. biggest. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. He, he does well without you, Eric, in another company. <laughs> He I'll does, give him that. <laughs> he does okay. And then when WCW goes out of business, you eventually come over, become an on-screen character. At the time, Austin was not with the company. He had walked out. But when Austin does come back, allegedly, he makes it a point to uh, come try to speak to you privately. What do you remember about that conversation? That was cool. And I, I think we've touched on this before, so I'm not going to belabor it too much. But um, when, and I think it was Bruce Pritchard came to me uh, originally and said, hey, you know, how do you feel about working with Steve Austin? Because, again, you know, there had been several years now of, you know, heat, if you will, you know, generated by Steve and ECW and even afterwards and then all kinds of peripheral media and shit like that. So there was this, you know, ominous, dark, you know, fucking cloud of heat hanging over Eric Bischoff and Steve Austin in the minds of, you know, wrestling fans created primarily by Steve. And uh, – I guess people started believing that there was real heat there. So Bruce came to me and he was um, cautious the way he approached it. You know, not afraid, obviously, but he was very professional and respectful and said, hey, you know, there's an idea floating around, you know, possibly you work in a match with Steve Austin. How do you feel about that? I mean, are you okay? I think the words he used, are you okay with that? I said, fuck yeah. Fuck, you don't even have to do anything. The story's already there. They've been building this. Steve's been building this story. The wrestling fans have bought into this story now for the last three or four years or more. Fuck. It's the easiest angle in the world. It's already been written. And I got really excited about it. And and Bruce was my producer. You know, and that's how Bruce and I became as close as we are to this day. Is you know, when I got to WWE. Yeah, people were excited to see me there and you know, kind of a strange situation to have, you know, the enemy in, in the camp, so to speak. Um, and people were all very professional, but distant. You know what I mean? They didn't really want to get too close to me because they weren't too sure how that was going to play out in the long run. Bruce was the only guy that didn't really give a fuck. You know, Bruce, Bruce and I hit it off, like, within about 45 minutes of meeting each other, we started developing a pretty good relationship. And as such, Bruce produced almost all of the things that I did in, in WWE. And we, we developed a shorthand, and we began to trust each other's instincts. And, you know, it, it was fun working with Bruce. So once we got past the, oh, my God, is Eric going to be afraid to work with Steve Austin, which was fucking silliness, but 
once we got past that, I said, sure, I'm all in. Let's do it. One of the skits that, you know, Vince McMahon, you know, storyline-wise, you know, put the pressure on me as the GM of, of um, Raw to make sure that, you know, we signed Steve Austin to Monday Night Raw, right? So, and knowing that I had all this heat with Vince storyline-wise, knowing, you know, the setup storyline-wise was because Eric Bischoff had all this heat with Steve Austin. Now he's got to go to Texas and try to talk Steve Austin into coming back to Monday Night Raw. That was the setup for the, the backstage stuff that we were doing. So Bruce and I flew to Texas, and we were filming all these different scenes around where I'm searching for Stone Cold Steve Austin and starting to kind of lose a little bit of control because I was having a difficult time, you know, Finding him, we're out in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and I, you know, I showed up wearing this fucking Hollywood-looking track suit that was looked like some kind of a goofball Hollywood agent would wear, and I was being obnoxious about it as I possibly could on camera, but I was getting frustrated on camera because I couldn't find Steve. And well, one of the last scenes that we had was in a bar. Uh, where I was going to confront a couple kids and hit one of them in the head with a beer bottle because he wouldn't tell me anything. It was a fake beer bottle, obviously. But while we were setting up for that scene, now keep in mind, I hadn't seen Steve face-to-face since before I fired him, right? And all of this, you know, back and forth is going on, you know, with Steve and burying me and, you know, all the shit that Steve did. Um, I hadn't seen him in years, so I'm I'm downstairs in this bar. It was a two-level bar, a little tavern in the middle of somewhere, Texas. I can't remember the name of it. And it was a fun little town, though. Bruce and I had a blast there. It's another story, not for prime time. But um, Steve came down. Bruce got a hold of Steve. He evidently lived somewhere close. And Steve came down and, you know, hey, kid, got to talk to you a minute, pull me aside. And it was like, you know, we had our conversation, you know, and it was a great conversation. And I'll, you know, I'll summarize it by saying, you know, he looked at me and said, had, had you not fired me and I don't blame you for doing so again, go back to his podcast. You'll hear it for, for yourself out of his mouth, not mine. And I don't blame you. I would have fired me too, were his words to me basically, but paraphrasing a little bit here. But had you not fired me, I would have not found my character. I would not have become Stone Cold Steve Austin. So thank you for that. That was it. And from that point on, it was like nothing bad had ever happened. It was like we were flashed back to 1991 when we were both new in the company and laughing and joking in the green room. Everything was fine. And I couldn't wait to work with them. And it was as I reflect back to this, you know, if if – and I'm probably close to that point now at this point in my career. If somebody said to me, you'll never step foot in front of a camera again in the, in, in, in the sports entertainment, you know, I, first of all, that wouldn't make me sad because I've had such a great career and so many great experiences, not so much a great career. That's obvious in some respects, but the experiences that I've, I've had, I, I wouldn't trade any of them, the good, the bad, the ugly for anything. It's once in a lifetime opportunity that, most likely no one will ever get to experience again because the world has changed and the the kind of things that I was able to live through, it's going to be hard to recreate them in the future. And I'm so very grateful for all of them, good, bad, the ugly. But one of the ones that I'm most grateful for was having the opportunity to work with Steve, which by the way, none of it would have been interesting, entertaining, or made any sense had the all of the 
the history, you know, from 1994 up until the point that I worked with Steve in whatever year it was in 2000s, um, had all of that not happened, that Stone Cold Steve Austin, Eric Bischoff story in WWE would have made no fucking sense. And even if we would have done it, it would have been meh. But because of the heat, the perceived heat, the history and the anticipation of what's going to happen, you know, when, when Austin and Bischoff finally get in the ring together, um, it was one of the one of the experiences that I value the most among many go out of your way to watch no way out 2003. It's Steve Austin's first match back with the company and it's against Eric Bischoff. And he even approached Eric beforehand and said, listen, man, it's been a while since I worked. My timing may be off, but I'm not intentionally going to try to hurt you. And then of course he caught you with some stiff shots, but it looked good. Go check it out. No way out. 2003 Eric Bischoff. Uh, versus Stone Cold Steve Austin, and then eventually you guys will be co-GMs and had a great time, and he's one of the all-time greats, and today is 316. Tune in tonight to Monday Night Raw, and you'll get to see the rattlesnake back. It's a weird time right now because nobody knows exactly what's coming, but we are just uh, on the countdown to WrestleMania, and if it still happens, WWE superstars Braun Strowman, Drake Maverick, and EC3 want you Magic City Live in partner with Apple a Day Foundation and the Orpheum present Magic City Mania. Come see the stars of Magic City Live, accompanied by their cohorts and a wide array of surprise guests, including Ron Killings, aka R Truth, who will be performing his new hit single, Set It Off. This is all happening on the evening of April 2nd. That's a Thursday before the biggest weekend in sports entertainment. Join some of wrestling's most boisterous personalities for an evening unlike anything else the weekend has ever seen before. And you never know who's going to be hanging out in the VIP. Go right now to k5network.com to purchase tickets. That's the letter K and the number five network.com. Tickets start at just $25. And uh, you can also get a VIP ticket package, which will have a very special cast meet and greet, access to a balcony with your own private bar, a goodie bag, and a once in a life opportunity to compete in a promo bowl. Get your tickets now and prepare to enter the hallowed halls of Tampa's renowned Orpheum for Mania Weekend. It's the wildest celebration in an evening that you'll never, ever forget. It's a super fan interactive event that you don't want to miss, unlike anything else during wrestling's biggest week of the year. And it's all for a great cause to bring joy into the lives of pediatric cancer patients. The K5 Network is proud to be associated with the Apple a Day Foundation and their objective goals to help pediatric cancer patients and connecting them to the outside world. Go to appleaday.org for more information on this great cause. But one more time, the tickets for the show are at k5network.com and you can subscribe and watch on YouTube. Just look for the K5 Network and look for us next week, man. We called an audible, but I'm excited that we did. Now we were supposed to talk about Uncensored 95, but man, 316 it just made sense to pay homage to one of the all-time great stone cold steve austin we'll be back next week and i'm going to bust your balls about uncensored 2000 how do you feel about that well at least my balls are fucking aerodynamic so bust away bust away next week look forward to it hulk hogan and rick flair in a yappa pie indian strap match we'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with eric bischoff John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs>
Those Weekend Golf Guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.